Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello and welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and it is with just so much gusto and excitement and aggressive joy that I bring you this podcast with Caroline Nelson this week. I want to be really honest. When I found Caroline's work, I had an instant guttural response of envy. And I really love using envy as a guide in my life. Envy is one of those wild emotions that I think we often shut down the moment we experience it. The moment envy rises in us, we have this response that we just want to turn away from whatever it is that we are envious of and leave it in the dust. I don't want to be reminded of my own sense of scarcity. And this emotion that's coming up is bringing up where I think I'm lacking. And none of us want to look at where we think we are lacking. And remember that this is all a very subjective experience. This is my subjective experience. And when I found Caroline, I was like, this is a woman that has it figured out. I love the way that she speaks to the world. I love the way she navigates her life and what she has built for herself in Montana. And and better yet, she she has this beautiful way of communicating it online that people want to connect with. And oh no, those are some of the things that I feel like I'm lacking. Isn't it funny how these things really get rolling within us? It's like a snowball going downhill. And what I found myself doing was stopping instead of experiencing just this envy and this reflection of what I felt I was lacking, I began to get really curious about what makes this woman tick. And I watched her over the course of several months and just started to begin to tease out aspects of her that I found fascinating. This has been a really big part of my process when I do these sort of deep dive personal interviews where I will get really curious about how a person operates within the world and try to tease out what it is that I see and reflect it back to them to share what their inner process is like that creates what it is that I see and that maybe many of us see in them. And one of the first things I noticed about Caroline was her, what she eventually refers to as aggressive, almost militant joy. And I am so glad that I didn't let my envy turn me away from this beautiful woman because her joy is contagious. And so much of what unfolds in the course of this podcast has 
already begun to change my life. I say this a lot about each episode I record, but as I go through this process with my guests, each and every episode changes my life. It changes how I see myself. It changes how I see the world. And it gives me a new layer of motivation to go go after my goals, whether those are personal goals or they are business goals or they are relationship goals. This podcast has given me so much motivation. And I think if we can allow envy, if we can see it, if we can see where it's touching that lack, and if we can look inwards and be gentle with ourselves in those spaces that we think we're lacking, and then employ our curiosity, all of a sudden we have motivation to make new decisions about our life. This podcast has given me that in spades, but this episode especially just is full of gems of creating a new narrative for yourself, a new story of how you see the world, how you interact with the world. Caroline explains her inner process with such grace and such beautiful articulation that it suddenly comes to life and feels possible to implement. And beyond that, she is absolutely brilliant, an incredible thinker. And the way that she approaches looking at the food system with nuance and with curiosity and with primary sources is something to behold. And the good news is that we are going to get so much more of the way that Caroline sees the world with her podcast, Choose Wisely. And it launches today, the day that this podcast is launching. And so you can dive into Caroline's work and then you can dive really deep into Caroline's work. So I'm really excited to bring you this marathon three-hour episode with Caroline Nelson, who you might know as Big Sky Caroline on Instagram of Little Creek, where you can purchase all of her meat. And she runs an incredible cowgirl camp. And now she has this great podcast. And I am just so excited to see what this woman comes up with next. Before we dive in, I have just a few announcements. And one of them is actually about a friend's workshop for making earth based mineral oil paints. And you might be you might be thinking to yourself, Kate, what does that have to do with anything? And my answer is that I think it is actually at the heart of almost everything. I as a farmer, as a nutritionist, as somebody that really enjoys interacting with nature and being a part of the environment, I really enjoy finding new ways to sort of commune with earth. And my friend Stella Maria Bear makes this incredible, this series of incredible workshops for making either watercolor or oil pigments for creating art out of dirt. And I want to make a really little distinction here that Dirt is sort of soil when it has become inert. And so here we get this opportunity to create art with dirt that has been ground down from rocks that are just stardust compressed throughout deep time. 
and have begun to break apart and to see the colors and the depth and the relationships of our environment reflected back to us in our art through pigments that we make with them. And I think that this is part terrestrial and part cosmic and all connection. So if it calls to you, I am leaving a link in the show notes to this incredible workshop opportunity that is happening in Santa Fe, New Mexico on July 22nd and July 23rd. I think that this is a great chance to learn how to create your own paints out of the environment that are free of toxic fumes and are also archival level and grade. And so please, please check this out. Hoping someday we might be able to convince Stella to come on the podcast. But until then... We can enjoy her incredible art and her prowess at teaching you how to make art in co-creation with your environment. For everybody listening, we have some affiliate partners that help make this show possible. As you might know, it takes a lot of effort to produce these podcasts. And what I want to bring you is a transparent space where if any of these products resonate with you, if you purchase them through my link, I get a little kickback and you pay the same price you would, you actually get a discount. So this week I'm talking about Home of Wool in honor of our amazing shepherd, Caroline Nelson. And home of wool is something that is near and dear to my heart. Sleep is one of the most important things that I do and something I greatly prioritize. And since we spend a third of our life in bed, I want the surfaces and the fabrics that I am in contact with to be really incredible for my body. And by incredible, I mean I want them to be free of toxins and I want them to be natural materials that have actually been shown to lower lower your heart rate. And what I'm talking about right now is wool. <laughs> Home of wool is an incredible company that sources organic and Ecotech certified wool and creates pillows and comforters. I have an incredible body pillow from them that I actually use to elevate my leg at night, which really helps with some sciatic pain that I've experienced. And it is, it has a wool cover and it is stuffed with wool. We have some wool pillows from them, a wool duvet. I think this company is amazing. And the best part of everything is that it is all customizable. So any size you want, any cushion you're looking for, any mattress you're looking for, you can build it to fit. And you can find all of this by going to homeofwool.com and entering the discount code Kate Kavanaugh. That's my name, K-A-T-E-K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H for 10% off any Home of Wool goods. Again, you're going to go to homeofwool.com and use the discount code Kate Kavanaugh for 10% off if you want to dive into changing the fabrics around your sleep. 
Last, I want to mention that if you enjoy this podcast and you want to subscribe, I would be so honored to be coming into wherever you listen to podcasts on a weekly basis. We have some incredibly exciting guests and explorations coming up. In Q2, we're looking a lot at death, a lot at discipline, a lot at our relationship with our environment and what it means to have sort of a fresh outlook on on life. So I would love if you would subscribe. And if this podcast has impacted you, you'd like to leave a review. I do offer this moment where if you leave a review and shoot me a picture of it on Instagram or an email, then I will send you a little note via snail mail. And in that vein this week, I want to read a review from Abigail Rain. Wonderful conversations, Abigail writes. The Mind, Body, and Soil podcast has been a huge catalyst in my thought life, and I have thoroughly been enjoying each topic Kate covers. She holds space for each guest to really expound on their passions, which leaves me considering what my own are. I walk away from each listen like I've had part in the conversation and just experienced the wisdom of a sister. I love this so much because... Number one, I love it when you feel like you're in the conversation. That is huge to me. And I, one of my greatest honors in this life is exploring people's passions. And there is nothing like watching and listening to somebody who is passionate about what they do, whether you are a farmer, farmer or a potter or a welder or a plumber. There is just nothing like watching something that somebody is skilled at and passionate about and hearing them talk about it in the way that they light up. So I'm glad that it has led you into considering your own passions. And I am so grateful for your review. Uh, If you're listening to this, I'd love to send you a little note. And without further ado, now that we have this intro and we are ready to dive into Militant and Aggressive Joy with Caroline Nelson. So I know like two things are true, right? Like a clean sink and a, and a home that functions well for everyone that lives in it, like is a valid and good thing to have in your life. And I also, at the same time, try to recognize when I become insane about that there's like one mug in the sink. It's like, I heard someone say like, whose voice do you hear in your head? Like when you're looking, when, because we're going into like distress over this mug. Right. And it's something about like who I am as a person. And I have this belief that like my home reflects me and my value and that like other people will interpret my value based on my home. And like, we I, don't have have that a dishwasher. Same, I have that same belief. And it's like when either we need to get a dishwasher and, you know, or fix the one we we've tried to fix the one we have It's a whole thing with we'll the new one so that we have somewhere to hide the dirty dishes or like I need to release this belief that I am bad. And also that Justin is bad. And also that Justin <laughs> doesn't respect me as a person. Josh, when he leaves this coffee grinder on the counter, <laughs> like it, I try to tell I'm like, Justin, it looks to me like a middle finger. Like when I walk in the room, <laughs> that's how it's and he's like wow it couldn't be further from the truth then it's like why and i do think this goes this is like some femininity stuff and maybe like we'll jump into that too it's like why is my value determined by the state of the sink or the counter you know yeah and that voice like there is there's a timber to that voice when 
the kitchen has has overrunneth with all of the farm <laughs> things and yes. you're trying to get back to zero and i really value the mental health that having a tidy house gives mm. me it, yes. it really does confer this level of feeling like more things are possible feeling like i have a clean slate feeling like i can approach the day fresh yeah and having a farm <laughs> It's just not always the most important thing and it's not always possible. And that's really important for me to see is when, when having a clean house is not the most important metric and it just needs to be a little, a little undone for a minute and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we, if we say that like a clean house equals like contentment and peace. And I have this thing where sometimes I can't relax in my house or my space, like unless it's clean and we are farmers and we are busy. And my mom always says you can have a clean house or you can be interesting, which I, I love that expression. And I am sure it's not true, but I hold it <laughs> tightly to myself when my life is in chaos. Cause it's like, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm interesting. No. Um, like we have now set ourselves up for this impossible task of endless, because really have you, have you noticed this? Like you're never done. You can actually tidy the kitchen. You can take the trash out. You're still not done. We are brains now. And I think this is also maybe a feminine thing, but also a highly sort of creative and also like busy brained kind of people thing is like the list. We just add shit to the list when we accomplish more stuff and then I've allowed my brain to like be in a constant state of re- restlessness. And then that's not healthy. And also it's like bad for my marriage because then I turn on Justin and I'm like, and you, <laughs> <laughs> this is funny because I've always said that the, the thing I really love about the sink and dishes is that it's something that I can do from start to finish in a day and where it constantly feels like that list gets added to. And I think this happens a lot in farming, a lot in business ownership where you go to do one thing and all of a sudden something is broken or in order to do that thing, you have to do these four other things Yes, and your list grows in ways that you could not have anticipated. But those dishes feel fixed. There are only amount the amount of dishes that are on the sideboard right now in the evening. And I can ensure that in the morning we're back to zero. Yeah. I love that. And I'm in this place now too, of trying to think of my future self. I think we talked about this a little, like of, as a real person with needs that I, I am invested in taking care of her because previously I've had this idea of my future self as this fundamentally different and better version of me. Like myself in six months will, she will be doing yoga every day. Like she will be so limber, Kate. Like, (laughs) (laughs) okay. I love this. I love this. Keep going. (laughs) Yeah. So my future self, she's always five pounds lighter than whatever I am. Always. Mine too. Time always. Yeah. She's just like a little trimmer. She's just like Mm -hmm. trim. Yeah. Yep. Slow tighter. She's has this way of wearing clothes that is like she has a bit tighter of a style. Things yes. go together on her body, and yes. she effortlessly wears like clothes, and she knows what to how to do it. And also, she has earrings in. Okay, so these are oh, all. She's these gonna say that. This is so funny. I was gonna say my future self is always wearing earrings, which I yes. never, never wear. wear earrings. <laughs> never. <laughs> And here's yes, the really she's big put one. Together, fuchsia put together. Yeah, the, the, every piece. She's got accessories. She's always wearing a white shirt. 
and it's always clean. (laughs) (laughs) And the worst one for me, and this has been really hard to accept being a rancher is like my future self is a morning person. And I know you're a morning person and I'm a night owl and I tie in virtuousness with early rising. And so I'm trying to accept that, like, I think this version of Caroline, not only is she probably all right, but she's probably like the best it's going to be like whatever level of high functioning I've got going on. I'm probably like doing it right now. And so trying to be like, how do I set this person up? Who's not, she's not better than me. She is me. She might be even more tired than me. Like, how do I tonight or tomorrow or this week, like make her life better and function. And that's, and it's causing me to have to let go of like a little of this magical thinking. And and we've touched on this and I I love this topic. Like, and, and there is truly also this magical thing, like of taking care of yourself as this real person in the future who has needs. Like I'm going to put the coffee grinder away because my future (laughs) self will really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. There's an element of imagining that our future selves always have it. They're always more together. They're always more accomplished, a little bit trimmer. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And it feels like, I think in some ways there's this idea that you don't have to, you want her to take care of you, right? Like I want my, I want my future self to take care of me. Whoa. When in fact the reverse is true, that it is what we do now for our future self that cultivates whatever it is that makes us want to wear earrings. Um, yes. <laughs> the, the painful thing is like, yes, my future self is no different or better than me today, but also, and also I can do something in five minutes today. Like I could be limber in six months if I wanted to be, I could stretch for 10 minutes every day between now and then. And like have a radically different body, just how it feels. And I know that when I do those things, I do feel radically different in my body. So, and this gets to, I I know you're on a personal responsibility kind of like vibe too in your life. And it, it goes to there too of like how, and then at the same time, it's like, I don't want my day to be this list of endless tasks that I have to check off to be the person that I want to be. Like, I just, I don't want to be a list maker because I, I already have to do enough of that anyway. So I'm just playing with all this stuff. It's like being, okay, I'm going to quote my mom again. She, my mom has the best lines. I have this whole notes app in my phone of all the things she says, but one of them is, um, having a body is a full-time job, which I love. Cause it's like, when you wake up in the morning, you could spend the whole day attending to your body's needs. And yes. Full day. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a full-time job. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think you said something really interesting because you could have a different body in six months Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in only five minutes a day. You could change the way that your internal (laughs) landscape feels for you as you move about your, your daily tasks. But how do you do it in a way that doesn't feel like an obligation and it doesn't feel like something you have to add to the list. And it feels like something that integrates into your day. And this is a lot of what I've been playing with, with discipline and list making for other things. Mm -hmm. So that suddenly space opens up because I constantly feel like there isn't enough time that there isn't enough space. And so how do I create more room for what you just did, more room for a little bit of an exhale where maybe it sounds good to relieve some of the tension in my body by getting on the floor and stretching. And it doesn't feel like something, oh, I have to stretch because future Kate is super limber. Yeah. 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 And then this gets to giving ourselves time, giving ourselves time back 
creating time. And then also I'm playing with the idea right now of what if I just believed there was plenty of time and that I didn't have to rush because I ran an experiment on myself. This was like last June. And I said, I was feeling really burned out. And I'm like, how about I just do this thing where I don't rush at all this month. And I do as little as humanly possible to function, to keep my farm functioning, my business, my human body functioning, my relationship. So I did the least, like I was watching Netflix at 2 PM any day that I could. I was, I gave myself full permission to be a slob, be a sloth, take the most leisurely walks, take the dogs, like do, I just, you know, and what I found was at the end of that month was that I was not less productive at all. Fascinating. At all, Kate, at all. And not only that, I was more creative. I had like tons of creative energy overflowing. I couldn't attend, like had I chased down every creative impulse, I would have had no time, but I was like overflowing with like abundant creative, creative energy. And it's weird because for me, like when I say to myself, like you can do whatever you want, I do like a good, I do a good slothy week, you know, but I do then default into this version of myself that I like a lot. A person that is moving, that is getting outside and and homemaking some food during the week and doing all these things that I value. And then I was also doing, getting my work done. So I'm like, wait a second, what if we do have enough time? (laughs) That's a really interesting experiment because I think that, and I am curious to try that for a week because I think that that really pushes like, where is freedom giving us discipline because we feel like we have space and where does, you know, right now the experiment that I've been in is the opposite. Where does discipline and more regimented space give us that freedom? Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me what that looks like in your life? Well, I, I know you know what this is like where you're juggling multiple businesses with different threads that have different needs and different inputs. And so this has been a lot of how do I, so on Sunday, this is a really good example. On Sunday, my husband and I asked one another, how can we take control of the week instead of the week taking control of us? Because I often find that by the time Wednesday or Thursday rolls around, I'm like, what happened? I had all of these best laid plans and I just feel like I can't see the forest for the trees. And so for me, this has looked like a lot of list making, brain dumping, looking at where my time is best spent, looking at what can be delegated either from a financial aspect, like do we have the finances to delegate this to such and such person or do we have a way of not doing, looking at priorities in our business? Like, is this truly a priority? What is the, and I know we've talked about this, some um, return on investment yeah, in yeah. this for me and just trying to dial it in really tight. And so we spend Sunday evenings really making a good list and building a good schedule. And then once a month having kind of a meeting for what does the next month look like? and getting together because I think oftentimes, and you run some of your businesses with Justin. So like we're ships passing in the night, trying to run a business together. Mm -hmm, (laughs) And mm -hmm. so making sure that we are also on the same page. Yeah. That's a huge challenge for us. And I think, I wonder how much this goes back to sort of, you know, how there's like leadership styles or personality styles and also maybe the seasonality and the phase of life that we're in. So when I'm in a period of like, wow, I got to grind. I have the three months that are going to be really intense. I find that 
I get a lot of comfort in those moments from the regimented approach the, from a ton of lists. I get my calendar going like, and I'm even starting to like, then I would build in free time into the calendar. Mm-hmm. So it's like mm-hmm. Wednesday afternoon, so we're not doing anything. Yeah. And then I feel like I've got times when I need that total exhale in my life and I want to throw everything out the window and that really helps me. So it's like, and I, I don't know, would you identify just in terms of like your default, your factory default setting on your body? Like, <laughs> are, are, you, answer to this. are you like, da, 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 you know? No. Okay. So me neither. Like I am, I exist in the clouds. That is where I live and I have to come down to earth to function. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And it can be kind of hard for like other people working with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this is part of why when I'm in those seasons of work, which I'm not always in, this is not, Mm -hmm. this is not my standard way of operating. When I'm in those seasons of work, I need a structure. I need a container because... I am a free floating, free wheeling, whim following being. And I think maybe this is some of that feminine coming into that space too. And so when I have a goal or I have three months where I really need to focus in or six months or a year, whatever that is, I need a different level of structure. Yeah. Yeah. That's so well said. I'm very much the same way. And my structure, I'm also learning too. It's like, it's okay for my weird chaos to look like, as long as it works for me, that's okay. It doesn't have to, you know, like people are always trying to sell each other on the internet, like a system, you know, if you just get this notebook or this calendar and I'm like, okay, for me, (laughs) it's post-it notes. And I found, so like I get these blank notebooks online. It has to be online. Otherwise I can't function. And in these big, huge pages and I just scribble, scribble, scribble and I do highlighters and it's total chaos and my desk is embarrassing, but it's like, this is how I line myself out and it totally works for me. And I'm kind of not, yeah, it's not, I shouldn't even say it's embarrassing. Like I'm, I, I'm clearly high functioning in, at this state and I'm learning that like that system's okay. Like I don't need to use like a task manager, you know what I mean? But if that works, that's great. It's just, this is so important. It has to be bio-individual. Like it has to be individual to what works for you. And I think that through that, there has to be some experimentation. Like it took, it has taken me a lot of time to develop systems that work for me and they don't look like the systems that work for other people. It's not a bullet journal that you sold me. It's not, it's just this mix of different colors and schedules and notebooks. I really need it to be dotted, not lined or graph paper. (laughs) Oh God. I'm like, my skin is crawling with you saying graph paper, like never in all my days. No, no nightmare. Uh, they have to be dotted. Recently I got a notebook. I really like for some scheduling to create some more time blocking and there are a lot of highlighters. I concur. Yeah, I have right now. Like, so that brings me to something that you said. It's not, you said it's not a bullet journal that someone sold me. And I have this, this is like a really, a thing I love to riff on, which is like, we can't buy our way into almost anything. So you can't buy your way into organization. My favorite one is like, you can't buy yourself into sustainability. And I get so angry when like companies market like if you buy this, then you'll be sustainable. And like, I'm a regenerative rancher. I have things to sell. And I am not saying those words. Like you could make an argument that buying my product is among the most sustainable things you could buy on earth. 
And I would still never say that because it's like the most sustainable thing that we can do is just like use what we already have. I I'm so I just did this um pre-recorded like a podcast a podcast episode on um leather and leather. And so learning what pleather like really is has like I've known, but I didn't know now. And I am deeply, I am so distressed that I now have this pleather sofa in my living room that I bought from Overstock like two years ago. We had no money. It cost $400. I was like, we're doing this. And now my first instinct was like, I have to buy a new sofa, a sustainable sofa. (laughs) And then I'm like, God damn it. No, I don't. I have to keep this stupid. I mean, maybe not. <laughs> I have to wear this sofa into the, till it returns to the earth in dust form. You know what I mean? Till every microplastic has returned to the land. Like, uh, you know, we can't buy our way out of this challenge that in many ways buying has gotten us into. Oh, I think that this is really important. And I think it's easy to feel that that's the case. And I think that, I think that the way that society is set up is structured that way. Like we're always offered a product or a pill or whatever it is, a solution Mm -hmm. that is Mm -hmm. purchasable. And (laughs) I think that the hard part is realizing that most of the solutions are in us. The solution for the dishes in the sink isn't necessarily a dishwasher, though it does come in handy. (laughs) It is creating the space and time to do the dishes. And that requires a cultivation of something internal. And, you know, a little bit harder when we're talking about feeding ourselves. But I think that often that solution is is in how we are with the world, not in what we can we can buy. So there's this you know, the trend in the 2010. So it was like 2010 to 2017 on the internet, the like whole plant-based veganism was like intertwined with like ethical and also femininity. Like, so, so how we portrayed being a good citizen on this earth and also being like a valuable woman. And they all got tied up together with like fashion and even like lifestyle stuff. So like there was a lot of yoga in there, a lot of like travel and sort of this aspirational lifestyle stuff. It's all tangled up together. And I realized recently, so this is probably a year ago. I started thinking about this. I was always dissatisfied with my own cooking and my own food because I was judging it against like someone else's Instagram in Aruba. And I was like, I don't have three vegetables on my plate. Like I don't have, I don't have like star fruit. And so I was like this stupid apple, you know, like it must not be as healthy. (laughs) And I I mean, literally I was like, us our own chicken eggs, you know, our own beef, our own lamb, like getting in the summer, getting like local stuff from the farmer's market whenever I could, like, this is great food. Like some of the best food ever right here. And I also realized not only like, was I dissatisfied with just like the look of my plate, but I, I didn't even like a lot of the foods that I was telling myself I was supposed to buy. And I was therefore buying. So I was buying broccoli every week, Kate, and I don't like broccoli. And I was wasting not only the money, but the broccoli itself. I was throwing it away or giving it to the chickens, which I'm glad they enjoyed it. But like, what is this? You know? And then it's like, I, I suddenly looked around and I was like, there is no food I can buy out there. Like the sustainability is here. It's already in my freezer. It's already in the chicken coop. Like, 
I got to stop this, this crazy thinking. What was, and then I want to get into some of your backstory before we dive all the way in. What was the impetus? When did you realize that you didn't like broccoli and what was the thought process, Mm. the voice in your head? How did you get there? (laughs) I started having this physical reaction to certain vegetables. So I would if I ate, let's say in a meal on a plate, I had, let's say I had broccoli, a potato and a meat. If I started the meal with the broccoli multiple times, and I'm I'm not kidding you, this is real. I ran out of my house dry heaving. So at first I was like, that was weird. And it happened to me like once or twice. And then it happened to me like once with Brussels sprouts and it happened to me like once. And this is over like six months. And I was texting my friends and I'm on Google and I'm like, what is going on with me? Because I would notice like if I started, if I ate like the potatoes and then the broccoli, I was fine, but I couldn't eat them first on an empty stomach. And it was immediate. It was like, as soon as it, and I don't think I'm, I'm not allergic. Like there's nothing, but something very much <laughs> my body. body. Like, was, it was like, I don't like it. I don't like it. And I was in total denial about it. And I also think that I thought there is some kind of ethics and purity. If you, if part of your diet is like punishing yourself, if it's not delicious. And I'm like really obsessed with this concept right now. I, I see it everywhere. And I think it's like, I really think it's an extension of disordered eating, especially for women. This thing that like, we're supposed to like suffer a little bit when we eat. Hmm. Yeah. And I was I think in that, that mode. That is, that's deeply, deeply seated and rooted. Yeah. And like delicious foods are bad, sinful. They're often fatty. They're often more nutrient dense, all this stuff. So, and then what I would do is then I would get on my husband because he really wasn't going to eat the broccoli. He's like, no, I don't like it. I don't want it. And then I'm like, not only now I'm projecting onto him. I'm like, wow, you're so unhealthy. You're so this, you're so that negging him to eat the broccoli that I don't even want to eat. What am I doing now? We're fighting at dinner. He's he's like, I never told you I like it. I don't want it. And then I'm like, so I've, anyway, I'll just wrap this piece up, but I have moved away from the vegetables I don't like. And then I've leaned hard into the stuff I do. So that means two nights ago, I ate an entire head of lettuce with oil and salt, like dipping the entire head of lettuce, (laughs) literally (laughs) stuffing, squeezing the leaves together and then biting them like an apple. And I ate the whole head of lettuce. And I was like, that rocked. (laughs) Because you loved it. Because I loved it. I think it's actually important to back up because you actually just touched on something I really want to get into, which is how we learn to listen to ourselves. And there's something really salient there, but I think let's go on a little bit of a journey to how you got to this space before we explore that. And, you know, we talked a lot about building a story out of your life as we were doing some back and forth prior to recording this. And so I want to hear a little bit about the story that you built that brought you right here. And then I want to dive into some, all of the juicy things. And I I was talking to my twin brother last night about this because I'm like, I'm not even sure how much of the story of my life is actually fully true or if it's only true to me. And so I'm like fact checking stuff with him, but The very, the quickest version that I can do is I was born in Pennsylvania to a family that how we looked and presented to the world was very important to them. And they wanted, I think they wanted the story of our family to be that we were like important and had money and we had things and we were above and better than. And I, I don't actually think that worked on anybody, but that was what we wanted. And that's kind of what we hoped I I think was portrayed, or at least that was the culture. And I grew up with my brother in this gigantic house. It was made of stone. It had like, 
it was probably built in like, I think it was 1900 built by like a robber baron, like 100% somebody that had like acquired wealth in a very like exploitative way in in the industrial revolution. (laughs) (laughs) You're like the person that lived here had a monocle, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in this like scary, huge, freezing cold mansion castle house. And my dad was a hoarder and it was full of stuff. And like most of the stuff he had like some objective value. Like it wasn't full straight garbage. It was like a lot of paintings and he would like go out. He was like an antique collector and a a flea market guy. And so like stuff would come home and like the staircases would have stuff up the stairs and fireplaces had stuff in them. And um, me and my brother would have stuff like hidden in our room when we got home from school so that it was like hidden from my mom so that she, she wouldn't know right away that something new was in the house. And, Oh, it's like bringing up feelings for me. This, this feeling of being like, I had to be really gentle in my home because if we broke anything, we were in big trouble. And like, if we were too loud to, even if we like stomped up the stairs and like we made a something rattle, that was like bad, bad, bad. <sighs> Everything was like, that's a tough oh, no. childhood. That's a very no, we tough like, childhood. We were like cats, you know, like how cats can like go through, you know, like that's how we were in our home. And also it was a very strict house. So like we had a, an informal uniform in our homes and everywhere. So we couldn't wear logos, anything with words. We had to wear like, we couldn't wear jeans till we were older, till we were like teens. We wore like white kids. Okay. So we were like little Von Trapp children. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of like, I laugh about it now because it's crazy looking back. And there was also a lot of, there was a lot of play and a lot of really great things in my childhood. And my mom was really like, she got me into horses and we had these amazing mentors and like, I had these amazing adults everywhere, but inside the home, like stuff was weird and like a little intense. And so I think I didn't know it at the time, but I, I was not in my body my entire childhood. I was dissociated. Yeah. And I, I spent my whole life in books. I was like very much a story kid, you know, I would make little fairy forts like outside in the yard. Like I was always somewhere else. And I started, I think as I grew up, got into my teens and my twenties, I had had the privilege of being around people that were like really embodied and had really strong values. We, we went to boarding school. We went, we traveled, we, we were exposed to a lot of stuff. And I got this feeling of like, I don't know exactly what that is, but I want to live like that. And we talked a word that came up when you and I were talking was joy beacons. And I started to have some in my life. And one of them was in Montana. My mom took me on this cattle drive when I was 10. And it was like the first place that I felt like I was an animal in my right ecosystem. I felt like a zoo creature that suddenly went from like fake plants to like a real rainforest, you know? Oh, I know exactly. Yeah, it was. I cried the whole way home on the plane, un- inconsolable. And The cool thing, I guess, the good thing about living with parents that were like so set on their own stuff and had such huge visions for their own lives, like we were a little bit accessories as kids to their stories. And I don't think they 100% like noticed what we did that much. And we were kind of free to like carve our own paths when we were old enough to do so. And so I was, they they didn't really, I was like, can I go to Montana every summer and and, like also holidays? (laughs) you know, I was like 14, 15 starting to do that. And they were like, yeah, if you sure, like if you can pay for that, you can go. And so I, you know, at it, that was what I did. 
that was, and I just started going and I was like grasping tighter and tighter and tighter to sort of these like rope swings out of the, the track of my life. At this point in time, are you aware that it brings you joy or do you know why you keep coming back or no. is it just, it, it's just a felt experience. It just feels right. I would have said at that time, and I think it's still a little bit true for me is like what I did recognize was like, there was some class stuff happening. Like I didn't like how my family wanted to be in this like upper class, you know, they wanted to be like a country club family. And I, I didn't value any of those things. I didn't like all this stuff. I didn't value having a lot of money as a goal in my life. And so I wasn't career oriented in a lot of the ways that like, as I got into sort of this very competitive boarding school and then into college, everybody around me, this was like feeder schools to like consulting and finance and all these high, high ROI careers. And I knew I didn't want that. And I knew I didn't feel good, like where I was. So I think, and then as I got older and did more therapy and I had some really good therapists and some, like, I had this very experimental kind of funky therapist that really like changed my life. Um, so usually the best in my, in my, in my like, personal experience. That's usually oh the, that's usually the thing. That's the ticket. It was. We went to this. I went to this place called Zenergy. Like <laughs> unreal. And I went in there, and I I think my first session. I mean, I was like seventeen or something. I don't or I mean, I don't even know twenty maybe. And she immediately, we had one session and she's like, if you come back, you can pay like 20 bucks an hour. Like, I don't remember what she, it was nothing what she charged me. And yeah, so I started doing that. And like, I got pretty, I started to know myself. I started to be aware of like messages that I was trying to tell myself. And it it turns out that I was screaming. (laughs) 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 So you learn how to hear yourself. Because that I started. And one of my questions right now is when we grow up with really strong stories in our family that we're being told, and you have a very different story that you're telling yourself, I'm always interested in how that, how that happens. Because I think that as children, either we internalize the story that our families are telling us, or we create a completely different story. And I think for those of us who as children really valued what I'm going to call escapism, and I hope that's okay because I was also building little fairy furniture out in the yard and couldn't get enough boxcar children to save my life. (laughs) (laughs) I think for those of us that valued escapism, part of that was valuing the opportunity to create a different story than the one Mm -hh. that we were being told. And And I piggyback on that a little because I think there are pieces of the story that I was told that I did take in and that helped me. And this is what's hard when you look back and you're like, well, that was pretty messed up what went on, but also this other piece of it was a gift. And so like my dad would always tell me like that whole thing of you're somebody, you're somebody and you're supposed to have a lot of money and a big career and be important. I just took the you're somebody thing. And I really did believe that I could do anything with my life. I mean, I was told that and I, I did believe it. And I'm really glad I did because I think I have thrown myself in my adulthood with this kind of like naivete into like, might as well try. Like, <laughs> if not me, then who, you know? <laughs> Which so, is yeah, there's pieces of it that were really valuable to me. And oh, here's one that really I flipped on its head. So I was always told work smart, not hard, you know? And it was like, 
the smart people in life are going to pull one over on the other people. And we got to figure out how to like work the system. That was always the story I was told. And I really rejected that. And I just wanted, I was like, I want to work hard, not smart. And I know that's like, sounds wild because now as a business owner, I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm like, I am trying to do a little more intelligent, like allocation of my physical resources. However, this thing where I was like, I just want to work hard. I don't care about anything else. So I worked on a masonry crew one summer. I was a ranch hand like every single summer. And then I went into full-time ranch handing pretty much like after college. And I was also a musician for a couple of years and we toured, we did like 80 shows a year and I toured like the whole country. And I was just like, I'm just going to work extremely hard. And it's, I want to feel what hard work does to my body and my like heart. Cause I had never had it. I was actually like, I was, had this cushy life. And, and I'm curious if this resonates for you. We had, we had sort of some similar stories that were told to us as children and being very disembodied, being very dissociated. One of the things that I love about hard work is that it plants me firmly in my body. And since I never learned how to do that, that has been my doorway into feeling embodied. Oh my God. That's it. That's what it was. I've never had the words for it. I had so much fun like on this masonry crew. And it's funny because for someone that's so is obsessed with the company of women now in my life, I'm like, I just want to be around women all the time. Now I want women community. I want to learn from my elders that are women. Like I'm just so obsessed with women. However, like some of my best mentors and most like fun working relationships are with this like very certain type of grizzly blue collar man that has like really warmly been like, Hey, you don't look like you belong here, but I'll let you like use a hammer if you want, I guess. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yes. And it was like totally healing to, I, Ooh, I think I'm picking something up here. It was like some of my very earliest forms of what's it called? Healthy masculinity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was where I found it first. Yeah. Mm. I love this so much because I think that so many threads that you, that you touched on are so apparent in the way that you are in the world. And so many of the things that we talked about as we built this interview are around femininity and around the stories we tell ourselves and the voices in our heads and having some grit and tenacity and hard work for something. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so I want to, I want to dive into those. And I, I just had a moment where I'm like, I don't even know, I don't even know where to start. Um, (laughs) I don't even know where to start. There's so much. And so I got a little bit lost in my head just then where I was like, quite know where to start because I think that I want to start with how you ended up ranching, because I think that this is a really important piece of this. And I pulled out a quote from you that I sometimes, you said, I sometimes forget how radical what we're doing is. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I want to talk about how you get there because we haven't made it all the way to that piece. Yes. So I was 27. I'd I'd been songwriting and and singing for a couple of years after college. I had this great band. We released like four or five albums and we were, we had these great opening gigs for like real artists. We opened for Chris Stapleton and Brandy Carlisle and like Corb Lund and we were like kind of getting a foothold in the Americana scene. And yet we also, I had this feeling from the world that I was no longer in the right place at the right time. Things were really hard. Like doors were not opening. They kind of had in the beginning and then they kind of weren't. And what I think now is, 
that maybe what I had to say isn't something the world needed to hear at that moment, or someone else was saying it better, or, and, or the style of music I was making was kind of on its way out at that time. It's kind of in its, on its way back in right now, but I, I was kind of missing a trend. There are a couple things happening at once. And I realized like I can either start another year of doing the same gigs we've done. Cause at that point you get kind of booked into festival slots. You have these relationships you have, like I, I play every Friday night at Mike's tavern, you know, which is like awesome. So I knew that was going to be there for me. And also I had this like increasing sense of kind of who I was, what I wanted. The voice inside me was getting louder. I was listening to her more and she wanted to go to Montana like once and for all and just try it. And, you know, I'd been at this point working on the ranch just summers for almost 10 years. So I had some actual accumulated ranching skills at that point. Like I wasn't super handy, but I had cut hay before. Like I could feed cows, work cows. I could, I could do some stuff. And the ranch I'd always worked for was, was so generous enough to be like, yeah, if you come here, you can have a job. And so I just, and also my family was absolutely falling apart. So they had, we had at that point been going through, my parents had been going through like a bankruptcy for almost, I think like eight years at that point. Like it was ended up being like this 10 year long, slow house of cards coming down. Like, and there, it was very clear that there wasn't really anything for me there. I mean, there, it was like, all this pressure had been put on me by my dad, who now was kind of revealed to be, I was like, I'm not sure I should listen to you. This hasn't worked so well. And so, so anyway, I I get, I just go to Montana and I drove me driving. There is this crazy thing. Like I have pictures, like selfies that I took at truck stops where my face is like this. It's like a emoji of the sun is what I look like. Absolute manic joy. I drove Kate. I drove there in like 40, gosh, let me get this straight. I can't remember. It was either like a 32 hour journey from Pennsylvania to Montana, which if you drive it straight without sleeping, it's only like a 28 hour, it's like a 28 hour drive. I slept for four hours in a Chicago truck stop from like two in the morning to six in the morning. And I had this whole like circadian thing where it's like, if I sleep all day before I leave, and then I leave at you know, 6 PM, I'll be wide awake all that whole first night and then the sun and I'll drive the whole first day and then I'll only sleep. So that's what happened. And I only ate like turkey and avocados because I was like, I'm not having any caffeine. We're not doing any sugar crash. Like we are just abs. And I had this little cooler and I had like six sandwiches. Like this is just <laughs> absolutely <Yeah>. psychotic. <laughs> Do not stop. Do not pass go. You must get to Montana. <laughs> like running for my life as it turns out. And yeah, I get there and immediately get back together with my now husband who I had assumed was out of my life forever. Like we were broken up, broken up, never going to speak again. Within a week, I was like living in his house. We were together and I was working on this ranch wow. and like my life really began. Everything was like boom, 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 boom right away. Doors were opening. Before doors were opening. And this doors boom, aren't opening. Boom. All the doors and are opening. Immediately, the energy shifted in my life. So from that point, I think it took me like two years, a year and a half maybe to start Little Creek. And from the moment I started with sheep, we started with four sheep because it was clear that like we were never going to afford any cattle or like any infrastructure, facilities, land, like nothing. And so sheep were our way in. The ranch I worked for was like, you can run these a couple sheep here. We can help feed them like as a bonus for your, for your job. And immediately doors were opening. Customers wanted to pre-order this grass-fed lamb. It was like, it was all sold in a week, like pre-sold. And I didn't even know how to butcher it. Like I didn't know, I didn't have a butcher dates. Like I didn't have anything. I didn't know how to ship really. 
And they started, I brought these sheep home. I didn't know they were bred. I didn't know anything about sheep. And they start lambing within a month. So I suddenly had eight sheep and I was like, I was in business. Yeah. And I wanted to do this grass fed regenerative thing. And sort of my opinions on like what on agriculture have changed so much. I had a lot of misconceptions then at the time, but I knew all I needed was a little stock trailer, some solar electric fencing, and I could graze the sheep like on grass just almost all the time. And that's sort of what we started doing. And now we have, I think, 75 ewes. We're trying to scale to 100. We have cattle now. Like it's just, it's scaled, but yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And you, do you still work with that ranch partner to lease Mm -hmm. land? So what we do is we, we don't have a regular lease. We have like a work trade agreement. So I help care for their whole herd. And then my cows live in the herd and then they stay with them in the summer. So like on my Instagram right now, all winter long, I'm feeding and I'm feeding like a big herd of like 200 cows. And so that's that herd. And it's this unreal arrangement where they've been really generous with me and helped me grow. And, you know, cause my husband and I, we don't own any land still. We don't own anything. And we, I always joke, we're like a ranch without, I'm a rancher without a ranch, but we have, and then now we have like a few leases and we're starting to quilt together like enough, you know, of an arrangement where we can, we can grow, but it's been, and this too is also goes back to, you know, my mentor, Larry and his wife, Shelly, but, but Larry is really who I work with every day. Like didn't have a ton of reason to mentor me or keep me around. Like I wasn't that useful. I didn't know how to fix the swather. I couldn't lift heavy shit. Like, but who has like doggedly believed in me from day one and who probably once a week is like, what do you need? Do you need someone to check the sheep? Like, how are the rams? What do you need? Like, do you want to come graze my pivot corner? Yeah. So we've been, we've been tremendously lucky. I want to ask you, as you go through that story, you say that you listen to yourself, that all of a sudden you, you hear that voice and oftentimes it's really loud. (laughs) And (laughs) once, once you hear it, like maybe it's been in there yelling for a minute, but picturing the bottom of a well, like somebody just screaming like, (laughs) I want to know how you have learned to listen to that voice, because I think as we go forward, this is really important and how to trust yourself because you make this, you make some really big moves, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is incredible. And then you catch yourself. Mm -hmm. So I think the cool thing about the move that big, the original first move, which is the kind of the first biggest moment of me trusting myself in my life came at a moment where I had nothing to lose. And I think that's a really important, good thing because sometimes I think it's easier to make big changes. Like I had no health insurance to lose. I had no job to lose. I had no relationship to lose. I had no money to lose, like complete blank slate already in my life. And now I get so many DMS from people like, Oh, I just, I want to transition to ranching, but I don't, and it's like, they have a comfortable home, comfortable life, health insurance benefits. And it's like, it becomes these golden handcuffs to where, and maybe that maybe you don't, maybe it's just escapism that they're thinking they want to do this, but it sounds so much harder for them to leave where for me, I'm like, well, I've never had and never had benefits at a job. Like I don't, I'm not missing them. So that was the first thing. And I was like, when I got here, I think there was something in me that was like, yes, this is what I wanted and we're doing it. And like, thank you for listening to me. And so then it's like, you've laid one little brick of in the path of like trusting yourself. And then, so probably the, the next brick was like, this thing in me is saying, Hey, this sheep thing is like, you should do this. 
I know you always thought it was going to be cattle. I know you want to be a rancher. I know you want to be a cowgirl and no one's doing sheep and everyone says this is dumb, but like, I think you should do it. And that was the next thing. And I got the sheep and this was like huge launching pad for me. And I still believe that sheep, if you're first generation, especially if you're a woman, if you're trying to get into some kind of livestock, that's not chickens, like sheep are unbelievable. And then I think maybe it was marrying my husband. It was like he, cause when I met him, we were 18. When I saw him for the first time, I knew I wanted to marry him. And I told the friend I was with that I wanted to marry him. And I knew it without a shadow of a doubt. I'd never wanted to be married. Like I didn't, it's not something I ever even thought, but like I, and the way I phrase it is like, I wanted to look at his face till I was old. Like that's the face I want to look at. I almost don't even care what's attached. Like I just feel like (laughs) we're just supposed to be together. I had that same experience. Did you really? Mm -hmm. That exact same experience meeting my husband. I walked out onto a back porch and I saw him and I was like, that's it. Whoa. And didn't, didn't want to be married. Was very young. Like I was, I was 20 years old. I didn't want to be married. I didn't want to be in a relationship. I didn't want any of it. I was going to have a very different path in life. And there he was. And there's like, there's data that like, if you have a strong story with your, with your spouse, your partner, it like helps you stay together. And I, I'm kind of like, even if we didn't have a good story, I feel like I would just make one up because it feels valuable (laughs) to me to believe that like, we're supposed to be together even on the hard days. Well, so just, yeah. Further proof that the stories we tell ourselves make a difference. It's like potent. It's potent stuff. Yeah. And I, I was like uninterested in his story. (laughs) (laughs) Mine says, we we were, so finally, like we get married in 2020. This is like 10, 12 years after we'd met for the first time. And I always thought marriage was going to be all these things. I always thought it was a burden. I always thought it was going to put me into this type of like femininity. I didn't want to be in this idea of what a wife was. I had like a lot of ideas around that. And yeah, that just hasn't been true. I love being married to him. I love it. And like, that was another thing where it's like, okay, you trusted your gut. And also we had a lot of family drama. So my family was not on board, like with us getting married. And we had a lot of bullshit go down, like around the wedding and all this stuff. So I had a lot of pressure, you know, coming from like a primary person in my life to be like, don't do this. Don't be a rancher. Don't marry this farmer guy. Don't live in Montana. I'm not coming to the wedding. I'm not giving you a dime, like all this stuff. And it's scary because you're like, at that point, my self-trust is like wobbly. It's like a toddler, but I stayed the course and it's been easy, Kate. This is a thing. It's like doing the right thing. There's no fanfare. It's not like, yay, you trusting your gut. Like (laughs) you have now passed go. It's just like this quiet ease. And that's what I started having in my life just with a greater and greater like frequency starting from this move, continuing through our marriage and like continuing through these years. Do you tell yourself that? Like, are you the fanfare in trusting your gut? Mm -hmm. Do you have moments where you come out and you recognize that you trusted something and that it succeeded and you are able to celebrate it for yourself with yourself? I feel like I don't celebrate it. I'm just like, it's just like another brick, another brick. And now I'm in this place and I feel like, I bet you feel this way. I'd be curious how, where you are kind of with your self-trust and like groundedness in yourself. But especially in the last year, like, I feel like I'm now becoming this sort of like unshakable thing where I feel like I, I know myself and I trust myself. And now I become, I'm like deeply offended when somebody around me either tries to push me around or tries to act like 
they can't or I can't trust myself. This can be around food or around, you know, let, let's say like I, I, cause I'm a, I love to sleep in and I'm a night owl. So let's say I'm on a family reunion and someone makes a comment like, Oh, look who finally decided to join, you know, whatever, like some shitty comment. I'm like, I needed to rest. And like, I'm not or like this little thing you're trying to do where you try to make people laugh at me or whatever and try to make yourself seem better. Like I'm not picking up what you're putting down. I was, I needed to rest and I'm not ashamed of it. You know, you said while we were talking at one point that there was something for you about finding steadiness in a culture that felt unsteady. And I think that what you just said reminds me of that because I think when we are able to build self-trust brick by brick, and I think I'm somewhere in, in that process that you are also building steadiness with yourself. You are building that space where your trust with yourself is becoming unwavering. And Mm -hmm. I think when we're trying to find ourselves, when we haven't found that self-trust muscle, there is this aspect of feeling a little out of balance, right? You talked about it, that wobbliness of the the toddler of self-trust, that it's not balanced, that we're unsteady, that we're not quite sure, that we are more easily swayed by what people say. Yeah. And I think there's this thing too of like, So if the inner voice in the beginning is screaming to be listened to, and then after maybe like a few years, it's just speaking to you in a normal voice, you know? And like, now I feel like I'm starting to see this place where my inner kind of voice is like whispering suggestions. It's like, you might want to try this. And it's about a lot lot smaller things. And so I'm finding like, I am still, it doesn't mean I'm, you know, bulletproof, failure proof, all this stuff. Like, so for example, I got a couple whispers like in January of this year. And one of them was like, I think you should open a storefront. And then the other one was, I think you should start a podcast. And so I like started putting all this energy out into the world to do those two things. And I like was chasing down storefronts and leases and talking to people. And, you know, I had like one almost locked down and, and then the voice was like, Oh, I think it's too soon for a storefront. I don't think you, you, you want to be in a storefront every day. And it's like, then I go, okay, I'm going to back out of this. And it's like, maybe that's flaky to some people, or maybe I wasted some time and energy like chasing this thing. But I, I started to walk that I listened to myself and then it was like, Oh, Oh, this isn't it. And it turns out then the podcast voice was like, this is it. This is it. Like that voice was getting louder, you know? And so it's like, now I'm taking the reserves that we're going to go over here and now they're going to go to this podcast. And that feels so good. And so aligned. So it's like, that's been really cool too. It's just listening to sort of now it's like this, um, yeah, like a gentler, a gentler voice about smaller, smaller things in some ways. I think from the outside perspective, do you mind if I say something? Cause I'm fascinated yeah. by something that yeah. you said, which is sometimes I think it's easy to listen to the voice that says go into something. And sometimes I think it's harder <laughs> to listen to the voice that says pull out. Yes. And, yes. and so for you to be able to listen to that voice, to me, that is when you have really mastered something around self-trust because it's really easy to be like, let's do the thing. Then wait, hit the brakes. Not sure this is the thing. You're so right. And this comes up and I I bet you're in this right now with certain aspects of business. It's like, we're talking about like, we need to prune. And you said something so great that I wrote down. Subtraction can be additive. Yeah. Sometimes subtraction is addition. Yes. Oh, that one really hit me. Cause it's like, you know, 
in the beginning, all these diverse arms of our business, I wanted to be, I wanted to create steadiness and resilience in my business by not just offering lamb. So I wanted to do like these seasonings and candles and we did sheet milk soap and all this cool stuff and all a million ranch goods. And we started doing events. And then I started doing coaching, a social media coach coaching and like da, 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 all this stuff. And now I'm looking and I, I'm not, I'm getting my economical books in order. So we have like spreadsheets and I have a profit and loss and we're doing all this stuff. And it's like, the ranch goods aren't making any money and I'm expending time and effort marketing them, packaging them, taking them to the UP- USPS, troubleshooting, one got lost in the mail. Let me send you a new mug, all this stuff. And that's just a small example. And the same thing with consulting. I think that's been sort of, I had a lot of fun doing it. I'm not sure the, like, should I spend that hour podcasting instead? Probably, probably right now. Like what the world is telling me is that's a better use of my time. And my gut is telling me that too. The pruning is hard because I think we get our identity caught up in stuff. Like, oh yeah, we have to kill our darlings. Right? There's a whole reason oh, that that that, yes. that phrase exists because you tie <laughs> yes. it up. And I think as business owners, we're particularly prone to this. When you put out into the world this business, it is initially an extension of you. It is this extra limb that you have grown. It has, it's fully vascularized by your personal blood yes. <laughs> <laughs> Like it is you. And over time, you realize that it is not you, that you are not your business, that your business is not you, and that it has to stand on its own limb. It has to make its own way in the world. And sometimes that includes killing some of your darlings, killing some of those ideas that felt so important to you, that felt so important in the world. And it's not easy. Oh, no. And I've had to kill some darlings recently. And I love what you said about we are not our business. So I'm like, I actually, I am obligated to kill these darlings because other people are now starting to depend on this thing. Like we have a team now. And so last fall I had my very first cash flow crash, my first and last so far, I'm sure I'll have another, but basically like the business for about one week straight up ran out of money. And it was 100% due to me mismanaging cash flow. And I, I was like, we need all these cows. We need all this stuff. We're going to need them to December. We got to buy them right now. And had this huge crash and I had to like, I was like, nobody can work this week. (laughs) Like literally I can't pay anybody. And it was, it's hard on the team. Like it's hard on, it was just bad. You know, I learned a lot from it and I'm like, this is, and I love to be pie in the sky, big dreamer, big creative, all these ideas, but it's like, it's not about me anymore. Like I am now just part of the scaffolding, holding this thing up and we're, this now is a team. And also it has a bigger mission. Like we, I want to be providing like well-paying local jobs in a rural community that needs them. I want to do good here. So I want to be able to have enough money to like sponsor the rodeo and like do, you know, let's contribute to local stuff. And also I want to be able to truly like have a good impact on the land. And we're, you know, we have these initiatives, let's diversify what's in this pasture. Let's do this new fencing thing. And like, if I don't trim the fat where it has to be trimmed, I'm sacrificing on all those fronts. And it's just because it's comforting in the moment to me to not do a hard thing or have a hard conversation does not mean it's for the good. And my favorite, one of my favorite sayings is comfort doesn't mean you're better off. It's actually a song lyric. And I like sing it to myself. (sighs) This thing of like keeping ourselves comfortable. Oh yeah. I know this resonates with you. Like, do you remember like five years ago, everybody in the like 
culture was saying like, I don't feel comfortable with that. That doesn't make me feel comfortable. I think we might still be saying that in some ways. And we, that, that was, (laughs) we might, we might still be saying that. I think, I, I do think we're like pushing back on that a little bit and like built, like talking about resiliency a bit more, but I've had to face this around my retreats. So we do women's retreats, cowgirl camp and shepherd camp. And a few times, like I've had people, you know, ahead of the camp or whatever, email me and be like, I'm just not sure I feel comfortable. Like with X, what if X happens? I wouldn't be comfortable, you know, like stuff, stuff like, you know, what if my horse spooks at something, you know, just stuff like that. Or, or what if there's cross contamination in the gluten in the kitchen, like whatever. And I've had to get (laughs) comfortable telling people and myself, like we might be uncomfortable. You're, and in fact, now it's part of my like welcome spiel when I get everybody to the ranch. I'm like, hello and welcome. And you will be uncomfortable at some point this weekend. And actually, I hope you will. And actually, I think it's part of why Which you came. I think would actually be a really good opening speech when you are born into earth. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. This is about to get really uncomfortable. I think that's the that's so good. about to come out of the birth canal, and that's the pep talk that I think we all need. <laughs> you get a little t shirt. Yeah. It's about to get a little bit uncomfortable. And I think that might be why you came here. <laughs> like every, like and in fact, people are like starving for it. And when I say that, everyone's like, Yep, one hundred percent. Like they are in for that. And it's pretty cool because you can see stuff like shedding off people on the trip, like from the airport to the ranch. Cause we bought this bus called the Uber and uh-huh. oh, oh, yeah. you know, EWE cause everything <laughs> has to be a sheep pun, you know, you know, and like, so the first, very first day that we had the Uber use like full, uh, hauling people around from the airport. This is last year, cowgirl camp, super hot day. We get there to the airport, the air conditioner breaks on this giant bus and the windows do not open. There's like one window that opens on the driver's side. So it's getting toasty in there. But everyone's like, do it. You know, we have water. It's like everyone's doing okay. So then we get to the ranch, turn off, and it's 12 miles of dirt road. And what we realized at that moment is that, like, what used to be a wheelchair access, like in this bus that has been now sealed up, was not really sealed. And all this <laughs> dust is now coming <laughs> into the bus. Mm-hmm. This sounds like business. And I, it like, yeah, oh, yeah. The clean, all these clean showered women, like are, you know, everyone's sort of gently like brushing their face, like, you know, at first. And like, by the time we get to the ranch, everyone's dirty. Everyone is dirty. And had I not like, I think done work around this, I would have been super stressed, but it was actually this like beautiful way to be like, we're here. All right, let's dive right in. You're going to be dirty this whole weekend, actually. Yeah. Like, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like We skipped and everybody was kind of into it. They just like kind of shed their, they left like some bullshit at the airport and we all have our bullshit, you know, that we have to leave anytime we're doing a group thing. And it was like, mm-hmm. it was like a christening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. And I think, oh, leaning into discomfort. And I think that there are a lot of different types of discomfort. There is the physical discomfort that comes from working hard and sometimes smart too. There is the discomfort that comes from killing your darlings and getting intimate with parts of business that you didn't expect, whether that's a profit and loss statement and getting uncomfortable in business and 
building in a sense of willingness. I have heard you call it grit and tenacity in order to do that, to get uncomfortable in all of these different spaces. I think it's a choice. I think we make that choice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a muscle. And there's all this research about grit being buildable and how rest is like super important to maintaining grit. Also, like you have to fill the tank back up. You don't have endless grit. And so like the thing for me too, is treating grit like the same journey that I've had to like learning to listen to myself where we're just laying down little (laughs) grit bricks, like trying to like, okay, like we're just going to do like 20 more minutes outside of this hard thing. That's making me sweaty and tired than I want to do. We're not, I'm not telling myself you need to be out here for five more hours. Like I'm pretty nice to myself. I really, I really try to be like kind and and nice to myself. And when my body's like, I'm freaking tired. I'm like, okay, okay. But like, let's, let's just push the edge and the edge moves. And I felt this so many ways. I've now been ranching, gosh, I don't know, almost six years here. And like, physically I'm a different person now. I am stronger. I'm, I'm, I'm less affected by the cold. Like I still freaking hate it. And I'm sick of it right now, but I can go out without a jacket, 20 degrees and up. I'm totally fine. You know, it's like, we're just tougher now. I don't get bothered unless it's below zero. And even then I'm like, I guess I put it on the thick boots. You know, you just get like tougher and tougher and my body can just take more. It doesn't mean I'm like abusing my body, but like I can just be in discomfort physically a lot. I can be in the hot sun a lot longer. It's that window like, of tolerance, you know? And initially that window of tolerance, yeah. we just crack it open. And then eventually we've just like flung the mm-hmm. whole window open and let it in. And it is a process of, of building. And I think, and I, I want to ask this because this is a different voice in your head. There's the there's the voice that is guiding you and that you're listening to, but there is also to me, as we've talked this voice that is telling you to keep going just a little bit harder. It's gentle. And I wonder if they're, they're different voices to you. If they have, there is, or if they're coming from that same space. So I think they're the same voice. And to me, it's this thing that I think is tapping into just like truth. So the voice is saying like, I know you feel tired, but I'm questioning whether it's actually true that you need to go sit down quite yet. <laughs> and like, is that like, cause generally like I have, you know, my first instinct is always like your weak, your weakest self showing up. I don't want to get out of bed. I'm tired. All this stuff. So it's just that voice of like, is that true? You know? So it's the same voice to me. It's all the same. And I even think about it. I'm thinking about this in terms of hard conversations now, like even just like me and my husband having get, let's get really real about finances because we're trying to get into like a beginner farmer or rancher alone and stuff. And there's all this like stuff we have to do for that. And we've had to talk about stuff we've never had to talk about. And this, I feel like I, I was always an avoider of anything tough and I never wanted to be straight with people. And now I'm almost like getting high off honesty and truth because it's like, I finally feel like I figured it out within myself and now I want it everywhere. And I want to have it as much in my relationships, like as I can. And when I have approached a few people recently about like coming on for the team for cowgirl camp, and I'm like, listen, I don't want you to do this like as a favor. I don't want you to do this. If you're on the fence, like I want you to do this because you're like, yes. And I want, I don't want you to show up if you feel like you're not getting paid enough to be there. If this logistically like does not work in your life, like this has to be so aligned for all of us. And like, tell me now, tell me now, let's have the conversation now about all the things and how we can optimize this for us. 
Because to me, it's like an energy thing too. Like when everyone, when stuff's aligned and you get in the same room, it's like, it magnifies that magic. And if stuff's not aligned and there's unsaid stuff, that's where I'm like, it, it throws everything off. And yeah, so then it's like also on me to build the skills. Like, let's say you get in the room and you're doing this event and like, there's an issue. And I've had, I've like paid for coaching around this because it's, this is a real thing I've had to build in myself. I'm still really building it. The ability to like lovingly nip stuff in the bud and get to what's going on. Hey, can I pull you aside? I noticed this. I'm wondering what's going on for you. Do you need something from me? How do we, how do we solve this problem? Like together? Because I wasn't exposed to like really any of this kind of constructive like leadership in my life. And I, I hear the voice in my head that I got when I was a kid and screwing something up, which is like, you're bad, you know, like you're, you're messing up You're bad right now. And I'm just mad at you. And so like, I'm trying to learn to have conversations with people and not go to that place. Cause that's actually, it's coming from a place of fear of like, I'm seeing, I'm so afraid that something is wrong right now. You know what I mean? And so like, I feel like there's a lot of things here. There are a lot of threads threads. here. And I think, (laughs) I think oftentimes ways of being are set in childhood that harken back to a place of fear. And again, it's building that steadiness within yourself to come from a place of, and I'm curious what that place is like, what, because I think that you're doing this in business too, because I think it's really easy to sit down with a profit and loss statement and come from a place of fear or to hit the end of that cash flow. And I've had this happen too, and let it just totally paralyze you. And so, yeah. And also not be so afraid that you won't even look. So I, I like avoided doing a PNL for over a year out of fear. I'm raising my <laughs> hand. People can't see that. Um, my husband deals with a lot of financial things actually still, because there is a place of fear and avoidance mm-hmm. for me mm-hmm. after having hit several yeah. of those yeah. cash flow bottoms and just sort of losing yeah. the stomach yeah. for it. And this is a, this is a horse I've been working mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. getting back on and, <laughs> and <laughs> it's hard it's hard, and it's hard to find that other place because if we're not coming from fear, we're coming from truth. Are we coming from, and I think that like what I heard in what you just said is that space of truth coming from truth and truth is there's a goodness in it. There's an act of service in it too. There's an act of service to the people around you, to your business, to your community, to what you want to build as an ecosystem, both above and below ground. Oh my gosh. You said it so well. And that really is what I'm striving for. And there's this thing where I'm trying to hit that sweet spot of like compassionate, supportive leadership, like from, from behind almost like, how can I build a team, empower people around me, get them ahead. And we're all aligned on the same goals. How do I do that? And also like, I can't control. How do I also let go of control? I have this like theory and maybe I heard this somewhere and I'm just piggybacking off it or copying it, but that like control is the opposite of love. And I, I was very controlled as a kid. And I was always told like this, I love you so much. That's why you can't do this or wear this or go here or say this or talk this way. <sighs> I know that brought something up in me just now, like hit me in the gut a little bit. And I've noticed it, you know, just being married. Like when I would first in dating Justin, I would try to control him. I had this thing of like, if he was out in the shop, like tinkering, he loves tinkering, like on his vehicles and stuff at night in the shop. And I wanted him to be inside because I wanted to hang out. You know, I wanted to hang out the way I wanted to hang out though. I didn't want to go hang out out there with him. You know, I wanted him to be into me. 
I would try to control him to come inside and then withhold my love when he was like, I'm a free agent. I'm, I'm enjoying myself. I'll be there in 30 minutes. And I'm taking that now as this thing. Uh, like, so I've been really trying to work on that in my life and in business of like control is like a total false friend. We don't, we have none of it. It's also not, <laughs> it's like not compatible. Like everybody hates being controlled. Nobody feels good when that's happening. And also it's not actually, it's only my job to set a table and structure a table and like lay out a beautiful meal at these events. It's not my job to make sure people eat. And some people aren't going to eat. There's going to be a few people that it's not for them. And like, it's my job to do everything I can on the front end of every, like the advertising, the marketing. This is why we're application-based. This is why like, I'm super clear with how we, you know, the photography, even I'm like, don't idealize stuff. Like let's keep the photography gritty. Let's keep it real. I just need to tell the truth and be as honest and structured and like do as as good of a job on the front end. And then people are going to come and have the experience that they're going to have that they're meant to have. And it's, it's actually not, it's not about me and I should be able to like actually go home like halfway through and they should still be able to have like a freaking incredible time. That's, that's how I know, like I've done my job. So that's been, it's been profound. (laughs) How do you think about building the scaffolding for business? Whether we're talking about the scaffolding for cowgirl camp where it doesn't need you, or we're talking about the scaffolding for P&Ls and budgets to build a business that is scalable, that has longevity, that has an impact on a community. Because one of the things you said at the beginning was talking about working hard, not smart, and then maybe being at this inflection point mm-hmm. where suddenly it is a little bit about working, working smart and hard, both, and working yeah. hard at yeah. being yeah. smart. And this is, this is something that we experience in our business, but how do you think about building that scaffolding? Because I love that you said that because that's really like, we don't build the meat of a business. We don't build the flesh of a business. It flushes out itself, but we build the skeleton that holds it. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I would love to like talk to you about this again in a year. Cause I feel like I'll have a, I'll have like a real answer then. Cause I'm so in the beginning of this, where I'm at right now with it is I'm trying to get out of my own way and let people be good at what they're good at. So like we have this amazing team member who does our books and like helps ship and like do all this kind of stuff. And I am handing off stuff to her. I'm like, you are better at this than me. Take it, go forth. Like, I am going to get out of your way. I'm, I'm here to like, I'm like, what do you need to succeed? Like here, I will make a checklist of all the things you want to make sure you bring or do, or like, this is what success looks like. Like here, I'm going to do this as the structure. And that can be an email that maybe that we just sit down and chat like before the day starts. But I think I was attached to, I wanted all my jobs to be hard so that I was more valuable. And I was like, when I had teammates, I either wanted to like work with them all the time or like not hand over certain things. Cause I, I thought it was like so hard or I wanted to think it was hard. And then I would start to bring them in and be like, Oh, <laughs> they're, they're <laughs> as good or better yes. uh, than me at this. And like, so I thought like, I was like, I have this special relationship with my customers and I build the best medley boxes. Like I do it best. And now like, so Josie is starting to build some of our medley boxes and hers are like so good. And this is, that's what I'm just trying to do right now is like, and, and thank God and God bless because now I'm so good at doing the marketing for our business. Like I'm so good at going out there and telling the story of it. I'm so good at 
starting this podcast and getting excited about new topics and doing deep dive research, like, yay, I get to do that now, you know? So I think that's what I'm trying to do. What do you try to do? Well, I was going to bring up something you said, which is the (laughs) ROI on work. Like what is the return on investment for the work that you're putting in? And if you're not good at it, that's not a good ROI. And if somebody can do it better than you, then their return on investment is going to be better. And then you can spend that time as the person that's building that scaffolding, doing the things that you are great at. And when that's marketing your business, that's very important. I think that I think that this has been something that has been hard for me to tease out. And as you know, when you own a business, you learn to wear every single hat and you learn how to be uh, not necessarily well, right? Like I don't look good in all of these hats, but (laughs) I can wear them. And so you wear your graphic designer hat and your marketing hat and your photography hat and your bookkeeping hat and your manager hat and you wear all of them. And then you learn a little bit about which hats work the best for you and which hats you enjoy wearing. And I think that that has to be a part of it too, that you have to, it's split. Sometimes there are things that you aren't going to enjoy that you are going to have to find ways to enjoy about jobs and businesses that we own. And I think that that is very important, right? Like sometimes we have to cultivate joy editing clips for podcasts because it's very important that we're the people mm-hmm. that do that. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, Cause it would yes. cast too much to outsource it. That's, and that's just like top of yeah. my mind example. Do you think like, do you think of like farm jobs? So I have started to think of stuff in terms of a dollar per hour. How much would it cost to replace my, me doing this? And my brother, so he's kind of a startupy guy, my twin, and like he's really been on me about this because what I was getting in this habit of doing, because we always want to stay in our comfort zone. We're always building a new comfort zone to like stay inside of. And I was like, you know, like I love doing this with the sheep. I'm a shepherdess. This is what I want to do. I want to move the electric fence. I want to spend my entire freaking day like Instagram storying about the sheep and doing stuff with the animals. And then I'm going to do all my emails and business planning at night. And what happens is you don't do anything at night. You're tired. And so I was like kicking the ball down the road for weeks and weeks and weeks, had no profit and loss statement. We had no bookkeeping. We had all this stuff. Massive. You know, I had no idea whether I was profitable or not. I just had, I was like, do I have a thousand dollars in the account at any time? Like, okay, cool. Like that was how I made all my decisions. So (laughs) now I'm like, okay, you know, my ROI on planning another cowgirl camp is probably like a hundred dollars an hour of me organizing that whole thing. Me moving irrigation ROI is like 15 or $20 an hour. And I cannot be so attached to my identity, like as a rancher that I only do that work. I don't let myself be outsourced where it can be because actually I will sink this business. If I do that, I will run this into the ground. And I I've seen it, you know, how tight we were the first couple of years and how in the red we were. I'm like, Oh, I've, I've done that. And I can't afford to do it now. And it's also been, this is also a little bit of a self-worth thing because I used to say yes to everything. I used to show up to stuff for like a hundred dollar honorarium or whatever. Like, Oh, if you just get me a hotel room, I'll go like, and I'm now like, I could spend that hour marketing my beef. And I, w- I kind of like will not. And of course this leaves room because when you start trimming stuff out of your life, cause you're like, I actually, my, my hourly rate, my value to my time is more than that offer. 
doesn't mean I say no to everything, but it means I just like have more room now to either like get paid or valued what I'm worth or do stuff that I'm so jazzed about that I don't care, you know, it's free or I mean, it's going to cost me money to do it. Like I don't care. Yeah. So this is vital. And I think it's vital. You mentioned something. It's vital that you understand what your shop rate is. My husband always calls it. We look at a shop rate, like how much does it cost at Western Daughters to be open for an hour, right? This is a shop rate. And so that is my overhead and rent, my cams, my labor, keeping the lights on, all of these different things. Like what is that shop rate? And Mm. We need to be better at identifying those for ourselves. What is my shop rate? And maybe it's a little bit variable and it, and it it does vary depending on that. Hell yes. I absolutely want to do that. I don't even care that you can't meet my shop Mm -hmm. rate. Have a couple of those coming up this year. And I think it's great, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's really important that we have an idea of what our time is worth on an hourly basis to help guide us in making the decisions about where our time is is best spent. And this isn't always easy to do. And I think it is even more difficult to do as farmers and ranchers, where oftentimes we don't actually calculate labor into our products. And our products are subsidized yes. by our free labor, propping up Correct. a total false economy of yes, artificially it is, cheap it goods. Is a artificially suppressed price of what meat actually costs. And it's in service to compete with the artificially suppressed cost of meat because of subsidies. Right. And like, right. I'm now, I'm comparing my meat to grocery store prices. So if I just don't pay myself, I can squeeze out, I can eke out a little, you know, I can charge less for the ribeye. And I, now I'm like, I've tried to build our business on $20 an hour minimum labor Amazing. fee. And it has told me some really hard things. It's like, if we're going to pay for that, like we need more sheep. We need to justify that labor unit. Yes. We actually have to scale. Correct. We can't pay for that right now. You know? So like right now we have like, and Justin and I, like we have started paying ourselves and I'm super transparent about this and I hope we can pay ourselves more in the future, but we pay ourselves $250 a week each. So we have like $500 a week that lands in our checking account. And that's like groceries, new pair of jeans. Like that's our life, you know? And I'm like, we're not even close to a living wage for the two owners of this business. And when I build my P and or sorry, my economic analyses, like I pay ourselves a living wage in there to try to figure out what are my true break even numbers. And not only, and not, not just a living wage, I want to be putting into a retirement account for ourselves. Like I want us, I don't, I don't want to subsist. And like, this is where I think, go ahead, go ahead because you're, you're in it. (laughs) Like, I just think of the idea of regeneration and regenerative agriculture. It's a radical paradigm to assume that not only should the land thrive, not only should the the animals thrive, but the people should thrive. This is vital. This is so important. Like, and I think we're laughing because it's so true and it's so true that it hurts because we cannot have sustainability in any sector without having financial sustainability for farmers and ranchers, without having that regeneration. And really, really early in my career, we were talking to the guy who would eventually raise all of our pigs for us at Western Daughters. And he said, why shouldn't I make a white collar living doing quote unquote blue collar work? 
Yeah. Wow. And this is yeah. vital and it's vital that we consider what it would take as a system. And I think that this is a really complex, this is really complex because when we run the numbers on like farm labor and when we include labor, what we would have to charge for meat is not sustainable in the current economy when you look at the sort of ceiling that is placed on the price of meat from a competitor standpoint. And yeah, right. And that means that some really big things have to change all across the food chain. And that includes at the consumer level Mm -hmm. and they're not easy changes. Like I don't want to, it's, it's really complex. There's a lot of nuance, but yeah, we have to consider what it would mean to actually pay ourselves where we could have a retirement. And I feel like just asking the question is important. Like I don't have solutions, we are still, I feel like we're always still compromising between, okay, we want, we want to pay the team. Well, we want to pay ourselves, we want to have these things, but also we can't afford to do that right now. All these, all these things, but like saying the words are very important. And I feel like it triggers people in agriculture when I'm like, I'll be like on the, on the internet and be like, I refuse to suffer. And people will be like, you're not a real rancher then. And I'm like, Oh buddy, like look inward, look inward. Like, why is it important to you that I'm physically unwell socially isolated, like poor. Why, why does that feel so integral to your sense of identity and what this career means? And like, so I had a, I try to consciously, like when I'm making content about like day in the life or whatever, that it's not like a grind and I'll be like, stop for lunch. Like here's my go salad from our like really delicious cafe that I got. And it has like grilled shrimp on it. Like not suffering, you know, and like there's hard days and I like, will for sure, like today I was just bitching on Instagram about how sick I am of winter and how cold it is. And I hate the hay bits in my hair and my eyeballs. Like, but my, where I come from is like, there's enough suffering just being alive on this planet. Like there's enough. There's also enough, like in this career, it's hard enough. I am not going to add to this. I don't want to be tired. I want my body to feel good. I want to be fed and nourished. And I want to not go to bed at night, gnawing at myself from the inside. So financially insecure like how I felt in the first couple of years of this. And I just, I don't want to, and I think I deserve better. And just saying that is like scary to me and it stresses other people out and triggers them really bad. You've written a lot about <laughs> imposter syndrome and calling yourself a rancher. And yeah. I think it's really interesting to contrast that, which I think we all feel imposter syndrome and calling ourselves whatever it is when we jump into doing it and we're learning it, whether you're a rancher or a podcast host or a butcher or a cowgirl, like whatever it is. But I think it makes it even, even more profound, even more of an imposter when, as you put it, you sometimes forget how radical what we're doing is. And for you to talk about shifting away from the suffer fest is really radical. It's really radical to say the words that maybe as farmers and ranchers, we need to change our identity from something that is associated with suffering. Mm -hmm. And I know that's not when you've Mm -hmm. said that, like that's not in regards to what you've said it to, but like that is also very radical. A 100%. I think we should be a little bit suspicious. This is where like the stories we tell ourselves are so important. I think we need to be suspicious of them sometimes. So one of the ways that I've been doing this lately is I've become really attached to the story that we are ranchers without a ranch. And it's a sense of pride for me that we've come in as first generation ranchers, figured this out. We own nothing. And you started with nothing and nothing was given to us. And I am proud of it. But at the same time, I am now seeing this is getting in the way 
of me moving forward with my life. Like we have probably like just right around now, we are finally eligible probably to apply for these FSA loans. And my husband too, the story he was telling, he's like, we're not ready. We're not ready. We're so small time. We could never, we could never put together a down. We could never all this stuff. And I'm like, and I'm saying like, I'm not saying we could never, I'm saying in my, to myself, yeah, but what's the story then if the ranchers without a ranch, get a ranch, (laughs) how are we a scrappy upstart then? And all these feelings of jealousy and resentment I've held to other people that have the things that I don't have. What do I do with those feelings now? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Can I, I'm going to tell you the first thing that popped into my head because we're being honest on this podcast is you'll probably find, you'll probably find something Let's bigger to be jealous and envious of because I know that that is how it's worked for me in the past. Right. Sometimes that's a driver. Yeah. But we just right. like our jealousy and envy yeah. just kind of travels. It <laughs> just moves. It just we moves. just move the goalpost. <laughs> you'll move the goalpost. Yes. That's right. Oh, but we can't. Oh, you're so right. Huh. This is part of killing our darlings, though, because this is killing the darlings of our story and yeah. those nuggets that have become so embedded mm-hmm. in our story and the way that we tell it in a marketing space and an online space. Like, ah, this mm-hmm. is me. This is Kate. I have I have taken this in and I have integrated it into my very being. And it's time to kill our darlings. And sometimes that means killing off an important part of your story so that your story can change and evolve. Oh my gosh. And it's so scary because here I am saying, I want abundance. I deserve it. I think we should live differently. But actually the idea of me being somebody that has like a retirement account that has security that can like go to a store and get an expensive coat, that idea of that person that triggers me and it triggers stuff from my childhood that excess is bad and unethical. And I mean, I do think probably excess is unethical. I'm not afraid to say that, but, but I tied it to any kind of financial security. And I have this story that the less I had, the purer I was. And to the point where my parents going through this bankruptcy was actually like a cleansing for me, narrative wise. It was like, I am clean now. I'm not going forth into the world. I'm not going to inherit this dirty money anyway. Like that is, this is the story about it. And even so, I just like to be so (laughs) honest, but I love it. This is the stuff I, I love having these conversations. Like I have this really cheap little red truck and it costs $2,000 and it's a two wheel drive and it's 19, 2002 or something. And I am so proud of driving 1997 forerunner. I think of it as like, a. Hey! <laughs> okay. This is like, look how, look how uh, humble we are, you know? And I look around at all these quote unquote jackasses driving their souped up seven, $70,000 King Ranch. And I'm like, You're <laughs> yeah. like, in my mind, I'm telling a story. I'm like, you're a faker and I'm legit. Okay. And I'm at the place now where I can't take my truck anywhere because it's so unreliable and breaks down everywhere. Like I can't drive two bows. I cannot do my job with the truck that I have. And my husband and I sat down and we're like, we, you needed to get a truck. And the idea of me getting a new truck that functions and drives and is clean and doesn't have dents in it. I'm so triggered at that idea that I'm like not doing it. (laughs) 
when we started this process, we talked so much about wanting to build a story out of life and wanting to go after those dreamy endings. And as we talk about this fairy tale endings, right? As we talk about this, how do you recognize when the story, when the story you're telling yourself has to change in order to build Mm. the story that you Mm. want in the future? I hope that made sense. I love that question. Perfect sense. And the way that I feel like it is like life and anything, like I feel like we're in this kind of, we can't see that far ahead. We can only see the next step, you know, and as you grow, each step forward reveals like the next challenge, unfortunately. And as I was doing all this like inner healing stuff and therapy, I'm like, dang it, there's more, there's deeper stuff. Like you get rid of that, like rough first edge of trauma. And you're like, uh oh, like it's like uh, the Russian nesting dolls of you like pop one off and you're like, oh shit, there's another. And you pop another one off. Oh shit, there's more. And they just they just kind of keep coming. That's what, and that's, I feel like with personal growth, because with, with every level or every new skill that I add to my arsenal of like, every time I get closer to like being truthful to myself, being truthful to others, like living in authenticity and and honesty, I'm like, Whoa, there's now, now I have the skills to see this other thing. I didn't even think of that. I now have to like chip away at and work on. That's been glare. That's a glaring this whole time. (sighs) So I guess that's what, what, to me, the story, I just see the next little piece. I'm like, uh Oh, I can now see because the story of myself has changed in this one area. Now I've started to see myself as somebody who is a rancher, who is a business owner. I am these things. I am capable. I can make good decisions. And now, uh Oh, somebody that can make good decisions is seeing that this other piece of the story is like not as good of a decision. It's almost like our perspective, (sighs) the seat the viewer, the witness of the story is changing and then is able to then yeah. change the story. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well said. Oh, you, you're so good. Oh my gosh. You're so, <laughs> you can always like distill so part stuff. Of my job. That's part of my job. <laughs> crossing um, it, crossing it. Yeah. I want to make sure that you have enough time. I want to keep talking. I have all this stuff, but I didn't ask you if you had a hard out on time today. I don't think it. Let me double check. I could talk to you. I just want to double check. I think I have just a thing at four, so I'm good. No, we're good. The AirPods are hanging on. Yeah, we're hanging on. We're great. Because my next question is, I want to talk about joy because we've talked so much about Mm. things that propel you forward. But as we crafted this and when I first started following you, what I saw was just the most contagious and immutable and radiant joy. Mm. And it it was the most profound thing. And I wanted to know, like, how is this woman so joyful and how is she cultivating that space? Because it's just oozing out of her in a way that speaks for itself. And when we were talking, you talked about cultivating aggressive and militant joy, which I loved (laughs) because it almost, it almost feels antithetical, but it's not. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I do think that some of this is a little bit was, was nurture because my mom has aggressive joy and I saw it. And like, she would say stuff like, no, I can't take you to your friend's house. I'm taking a bath (laughs) for the next two hours. I appreciate a long bath. (laughs) Which is now like, 
I, like if I was like, that's something I would say, like she has, and her thing, she was always like, I am taking the weekend. I'm going to a steeplechase. Like she's taking the horse and going to a steeplechase. And she's like, you guys good? Like heat something up. My mom would like on Thanksgiving, she would do, go to go fox hunting. And like sh- one Thanksgiving, she broke her leg, her horse rolled on her and it, and it broke her leg. And we were probably at 12. And of course my dad was incompetent and couldn't like roast any green beans or whatever. So she called me and she's like in the bed of a pickup truck with the leg just like flopping. And she's like, Hey honey. (laughs) And I'm like, what's up mom? And she's like, so I'm going to be late and I'm going to tell you what to do for the green beans. And so she like walks me through the whole thing. And then at the end, she's like, well, you know, I am going to the hospital. So the story comes out like eventually. And even at the hospital, she's huge smile on her face. She's fighting with the doctors because she had just invested. She's saved up for so long to get these custom boots. And they were trying to cut these <laughs> custom boots off her. And <laughs> I mean, the leg, like the ankle was reconstructed with much metal. Like, and she is concerned about these boots, which really brought her joy. And like, she, my mom is a radically joy-based person. So I got a really good Did template they cut from the boots her. And then the second thing happened in my life, which is very powerful. Oh, I think they cut okay. the boots off. I think they cut the boots off. I need to know the ending of that. I know. Oh. <laughs> I am so sorry. <laughs> But she, I mean, truly the fact that she was probably in so much pain and was still joyful when she called me on the phone and not fake joyful. See, she didn't perform for us. She wasn't masking it. And like her mom was the same way. I come from like a lineage of like crazy joyful women and I'm so grateful for it. And I feel very connected to that line. So something else happened. I think I was like 13, 14. No, I was older. I was probably 16. I was at a diner with a friend of mine and I was bitching about something cool. Like I was doing something, you know, whatever, something was bad. And it was probably something pretty small because what my friend said to me was, he's like, you know, you don't have to feel that way. You could just be fine with that. And I did this like knee jerk thing. I was like, well, no, well, cause objectively like it's bad because this and that. And he just like listened and he's like, I'm just saying you can just respond differently. Like you're, you're a capable person. You can just feel differently about that. And that like shifted something huge. And then I think through just, I really took that and I, I internalized it probably over like a period of time when I realized, and this, you and I have talked about this, like I finally realized that nobody was coming to make me happy, to make feeling living in my body good, to make that feel good, to make live the thoughts in my head good. I was raised with so much negativity, so much judgment of other people, so much horrible, like racism, horrible sexism. Like it was all in my brain and I, it was my choice like to cultivate it or not. And that has really been the journey probably for like the last 15 years of like a millet. And when I say militant, it's like, I have had to be so rigid around what is not allowed around me anymore because when I was rebuilding how I wanted to be in my body and in my brain and how I wanted to be in my feelings, it's wobbly. It's like we talked about before. So I had to cut people out of my life that were those things. That was scary, but I couldn't have it. And I had to surround myself by people that were all the, didn't have any of those things. Like my husband, when we first got together again, we would like leave a party and I kept waiting the whole ride home. I kept waiting for him to start being like, so-and-so is a real dummy. Like, or did you see how how that outfit on that person. I just kept waiting for this judgment of others that never came. He doesn't judge people. 
and he doesn't judge me. And it was like, oh my gosh, it's my job to like not introduce this into our, like, I have to keep this so sacred. And I feel like I've been that way with like my friendships. And now I I have like a hard time. Like if somebody says something that brings me back to that way of thinking, or I can tell they're in that way of thinking, I'm like, whoa, like I gotta, I gotta separate myself from this. Or like, I gotta like, because I'm so careful now about, and I feel like it's part of like cultivating this kind of aggressive joy is like, this is a choice. And I am still, I feel like I'm a recovering, like someone who is addicted to like negativity and and depressive thoughts and like judgment and self-judgment. Like that was the water I swam in. Do you feel, do you feel like you have to choose that choice daily or weekly or monthly, or has it just become a part of your subconscious? You don't even realize that you're choosing that choice. Like how conscious are you of it? Now it's integrated now. Yeah. Now I'm like, it's my default factory setting now, but initially definitely. And it's like, okay. Yeah. Initially it was a choice. And I would even feel like, I remember even wrestling this when I was little, little, little. And I remember being like 10, 11 years old. I'd hear something. I'd be in the back of the car, you know, and I'd hear like my dad say something that was pretty ugly. And I, I remember sometimes covering my ears because I was like, I can't let it in. Like that makes me so emotional thinking about that. And they would still come in, you know, I would still hear it, but I I didn't want to hear it because I was like, I, this is literal poison. Even then you knew even then, which is amazing. I think I knew. And it's just, it's gotten harder and harder and harder for me to be around people like that. And it's made me more insistent on the spaces that I want to cultivate at our retreats. So we like lovingly like lay a bunch of ground rules. And when you do, like I have found like when you build that into the container of like, this is how we're going to talk to each other. This is how we're going to be it. People pick that up and they immediately like switch gears for the most part into that mode. And it's like this huge gift to everyone. Yeah. It's like so profound. And so I still... (laughs) <laughs> like my husband will get gr- grumpy and I'm like, why are you grumpy? And he's like, cause I'm tired. I'm like, That's a choice. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, which like, I don't want to be, I understand that like everybody's brains are different and everyone's journeys are different. So I'm, I try not to be militant about other people's joys. <laughs> like, and I think a lot of times we forget it's a choice. Like, I think that's really easy to forget. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really hard to remind yourself of. So I love that. And I think this ties in with another thing that you had said as we were talking was treating happiness like an emergency, right? Like that choice is an emergency. It is an emergency. And I had like, this has been my husband and I's (laughs) guiding principle in things is you know, the reason we're here on the farm and not in Denver with the butcher shop, which, which doesn't even pay us right now, right? Like it doesn't even pay us for the the hours that we put into it is it was an emergency of happiness and we had to figure out something and having those checkpoints, both checkpoints and beacons. So you have to have checkpoints mm-hmm. where you're checking in and you're like, okay, well, I don't think happiness is the purpose of life. Like, am I content? Do I feel joyful in, in doing some of my, my daily work? And then you have to have the beacon of, okay, if that's not the case, where's the beacon? How do I get there? And how do I build that? And then how do I build scaffolding in a business to maintain that? And maybe even to spread a little bit of that joy. Yes. And I think I love the word joy for because what we're talking about, it feels like happiness feels like almost a cheap way of describing it because I don't, 
ever think like my life does not continue to be easy. I don't think, you know, it should just be no challenges. I'm talking about, you know, a joyful life being one of like constant growth and hard work and rest and all that. I want it all. I want it. I want life to be this juicy thing. I take a bite out of every day. I want it to be like so rich and that's what happiness is to me. It's not ease. Well, it is ease is part of it, but it's not just rest and being like a sloth because I might, if I have no, and, it, and I think one of the reasons I have ranching has been so fulfilling to me is because I'm somebody without a ton of structure and without animals to feed. Like I can get pretty, <laughs> <laughs> I need this structure. It's really good this is for really me good too. for me. I'm accountable to them. <laughs> And I need, I need that accountability of bells to, to get out there and feed. Yes. The discomfort of this accountability that this farm gives me actually is like a a path to joy for me. And I, I couldn't have it. I think if I had an easier job or a less structured, like I wouldn't have this much joy. Yeah. Ooh. Mm. I lost the thread a little, but I feel like it was perfect. It was perfect. (laughs) And I think. I think that it was really important to define joy in its complexity. And I think that, I don't know, I know that for me, joy is always tied up with a lot of other emotions that within joy, joy is part of grief. It's part of hardship. It's part of seeking something more. And so it's not just, you know, that sort of happiness, that cheap version of it. it. It's, there's a lot of complexity and I, And it's worth seeking too. Mm -hmm. And I love going back to like, nobody, like, I just don't want to wake up when you're 65 and be like, wow, I just, I feel like we always hear those stories on the news where it's like everyone on their deathbed (laughs) says like they didn't Mm -hmm. do it right, you know? And like all, all the people like on their deathbed that say they did it right are the ones who just like focus on relationships, like worked the right amount that felt good, you know, that, that they're not the richest people they did, you know, it's all these things. And so it just, I'm always like, guys, I think we already have the answer. Like, I feel like it's in every children's book and it's in like every news article (laughs) about the elderly and like what they tell us. Like, I don't know. Like, I just feel like I'm trying to listen to what seems to be like pretty standard advice on how to live well and be happy. Like I don't have anything radical to say. And I, sometimes I'm like, am I just the gullible person that believed all that? Like, I don't know. Cause sometimes there's an edge of this where it's like, you give up something real when you choose to ranch and farm. And I always joke that what you give up converted to monet. It's like you give up $50,000 a year. Like at minimum. <laughs> <laughs> it, it has a financial cost. <laughs> And like, my body is going to be different. Like my face is going to be like, I, this work is going, is, is already on my body. And it will, like, when I am old, my body will tell the story of a life that was harder than it had to be. And that's interesting. That's super interesting to me. Like I, I get triggered sometimes going, like when I go be with my friends back in the city who have like these great careers and, and like, I'm like, gosh, like their skin looks smoother than mm-hmm. like, it looks it younger than mine. Like I, was just I there. Like I am no longer, I don't remember what's cool anymore. Like with clothes, like I'm, Feed store I have lost touch of like what style is like, I guess. And I used to be like, I still knew it. I could still walk the walks, be like, I could still put that costume on when I went to those places. And now I can't anymore. This is who I am for real, for real. <laughs> 
and that there's a cost to that. And like, I always talk about the benefits, but I, I think you do such a great job too, of like, we, we're not trying to sugarcoat anything. There's real, there's a financial cost. There's a, and it's our job then to be even more vigilant about like protecting, protecting our bodies, nourishing ourselves. Well, you know, I look around at the ranchers and farmers, like in our community, and it is the exception to be thriving. Almost nobody is. And in fact, I see a ton of like huge broken family relationships, a ton of addiction, jealousy, bitterness, resentfulness, this whole thing of like resenting city people. And like, sometimes I can fall in, I can get into like, Justin and I joke about like the recreators, like on the weekend in the summers, our Montana town is like overcome with RVs because everybody's like recreating and we like can't fill our trucks up to go to work. And I'm like, screw the recreators. Like I get so, you know... And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, Caroline, sounds like you need to go float the river. Like, I have to be so vigilant with myself to give myself what I need so that this lifestyle works in the ways that it needs to for me. I have two places I want to go, and I'm really torn because there's this aspect of something that you said, if you did the math on your life, you'd never do it on this life, on this ranching life, (laughs) right? Like, if you run the numbers and if you, it, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But what I also hear is a desire to regenerate a lot more than just soil or to regenerate an entire different idea, maybe of what it means to be a ranching family, a ranching couple, whatever that is in this space and for what comes after. And I think talking to you, I'm reminded that there's a lot more at stake than just the soil beneath our sheep's feet. There's livelihoods and there's a way of life that maybe is ready for a little bit of new blood to come in and be like, how can we look at the stories that we're telling ourselves as farmers, as ranchers, and maybe begin to tell a different story? Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And I think hot take, I think a lot of our broken food system, and by broken, I mean sort of the corporate consolidation, the way that ranchers are egregiously taken advantage of. This has gone on because we have allowed it to go on and because we have not worked together and because we value the lifestyle over like a living. And if we tell ourselves that we're suffering and we're broke, we're telling ourselves we're more honorable and we're more honorable than the other people working in an office making money off our products. And I think the entire industry is attached to the narrative and it's an impediment, particularly in ranching, because there's a, there's the, the resiliency, there's the dependence, the rugged individualism thing that we have that is like kind of so cool that I really do love about, about our communities and how handy and independent everyone is. I think it's an impediment and you, other industries are not, I don't, have the data at least that they're as taken advantage of as ranchers. I think there was a really specific thing happening in the meat industry, particularly beef, where the margins, I mean, it's just, it's normal to operate in the red, to lose money and just have, have your, your wife work in town for health insurance. One to 2% margins are considered about as good as it's going to get. Yep. And that's across the board. (laughs) Yeah. Butcher shop too. Yeah. Uh, we mostly operate in the red. Yeah. Yeah. And there's something about being in like a noble trade. This is why I really hate the narrative we're feeding America. I hate it. And people get triggered when I say that too. But I'm like, I think that narrative makes us martyrs in our own minds. And it means we don't have to look critically at the situation as it as it stands. 
And like for me, we're direct to consumer. We always have been 100%. I will never ranch another way. It because you have to already have all your assets paid for. You have to have your land, your infrastructure. There is no way to ever make it work without those things. And then we wonder why like families are falling apart over succession planning and nobody wants to come back to the ranch and work. They want to sell it to developers and we're losing farmland. We're losing wide open spaces. Yeah. <laughs> we're at risk of losing the entire food system, this way of eating in a lot of ways because of the stories that if people don't come home to ranching, we're going to lose it. If developers take over rural communities, we're going to lose them. If ranchers can't make money, corporations will step in that can't. Yeah, that's right. And we are the last, I think beef ranching is the least corporate yes. of the food system. Yes. The, of the most decentralized. Sectors. We are the last holdouts, the most decentralized still, and we're still hugely centralized on the processing side, but we're the last ones. And if we go, it's JBS, Tyson, Cargill, and National all the freaking way. And we already do have a bunch of like big corporate ranches. And here's the other thing where I go with this is like, I see a future in which meat is a byproduct and fertilizer manure is the product when mining for fossil fuel-based fertilizers is either too expensive or we run out. I think to grow vegetables, we need to protect our livestock industries. One of the things when we started Western Daughters, I always said that we were going to save the prairie one steak at a time. And what I meant by that was that meat should be a byproduct of conservation. And and however we consider that, right, that meat should be a byproduct of conservation, whether that is serving as the fertilizer, which always has been, for vegetables, or whether it is increasing soil organic matter or increasing water absorption, whatever that, all the different ways that it is capable of creating conservation. But we need a, a system that supports that and we need businesses that are thriving in order for that to work. And I think what you just described is a very scary tipping point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we are at a real inflection point because something, you know, it's like the average age yeah, of a rancher is like 65. That's in the US and Canada, I think 68. We have this huge boomer generation that is now starting to, and from what I'm seeing, also failing to pass things on to the next generation, either due to just like the the reality of the world, like they're getting more better offers from the development developers, the kids don't want to come back, all these things, or they don't have the family communication skills to mitigate a ranch transfer to the next generation. Like they can't even do it. They won't do it. So there's something, I read some crazy stat and I'm going to bungle it, but it's something like a huge percentage of our land, of our agricultural land is going yes, to transition a, in it, the next it's 10 It's a years. frightening amount. A frightening amount. And people what like land? us <laughs> can't afford nope. to compete. Yeah. Nope. We can't afford to compete nope. against developers. I'm seeing prices. So like three, four years ago, farmland here was like four or $5,000 an acre, which is still really high because it's irrigated here and we're on the river and all this stuff. It's now $9,000 an acre. I'm seeing stuff listed. I mean, it is only at, at, a, at a price point that out-of-state people can pay. And it, Justin and I are like, can we afford to live here? Like, can we grow a business here? We don't know. 
And the only reason that we could even theoretically would probably be through the help of his dad, who's a farmer in this community. And it's like, then we are still able to, we have an opportunity that almost nobody else would have because of that. So it's like, it's also, be, it's like artificially being propped up by like nepotism or that's, um, yeah. which I'm down, I'm down for. <laughs> or it's being passed down. And that is part of that generational handoff that has to happen. Totally, totally. But it's like, it may, I'm thinking like we need such an infusion of first generation people that we either need a massive investment in like grants and loans to first generation farmers. But like I, right now those loans are only available. You know, you need a couple years three. in business I think you need three. to even be qualified. Yeah. And even getting three. Yes. It's like almost impossible. Not Barrier impossible. Anyway. to entry really <laughs> high. What we're about to look like yeah. the really high. The weight of what we're about to lose very heavy and we need solutions. Not tomorrow. We need them right now. And and I, I don't want to pretend to have any answers because I don't. But I think that what you're talking about as shifting the story is incredibly important because that is part of that is part of what builds this this next generation. I sat down a number of years ago, I had a chance to go out and sit with Wes Jackson, who wrote Consulting the Genius of This Place and Becoming Native to This Place, is sort of a contemporary of Wendell Berry, and is an incredible man who's built a lot of ideas within the sort of, he has this idea of homecoming, that we come home to farming, come home to ranching, and that we have to come home. And whether or not you're talking about the kids of farmers in rural areas, or you're just talking about first generation farmers that are coming home, quote unquote, to farming, that we have to come home. And when I was done with sitting down with him, and this was like one of the most profound moments of my life, he told everybody, he said, you are the most important generation that has ever lived, more important than the generation that walked out of Africa. And this has sat with me for a really long time of just how important the groundwork we lay now is for our food system in the future. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it feels like this emergency that we talk about, like in farming and ranching and I and even in ourselves, like how it felt like an emergency to me to take control of my life and change it and make a different path and, and find joy. Like this is all tied up together. And so I have a bunch of hot takes about our disconnection from our food and what it does to us as people, probably not hot takes to you at all, but like, I think it's also behind the rise of veganism. Like I think this, this I don't think it, and I think that like oftentimes like vegans are sometimes have the most in common with people that are into regen regenerative ranching. They've had the inkling that they want something different. And that's like the first feeling that they go on. And so their thing is like, let's cut stuff out, but it's really kind of a fundamental causation where this disconnect doesn't feel good to us. I think the abundance, the overwhelm we feel at a grocery store, it feels good in this way that like cotton candy tastes good to us. It's like, yay, we have endless options. It's like how we feel when we're like, have a dating profile on the internet and you can date anyone. It's like this false goodness. It's like false excess. And it has this innate discomfort. And I think a lot of us are find an answer to that feeling in different type of restrictive diets. 
Like, let me make rules for myself the way my ancestors would have had limitations. They wouldn't have been able to have everything everywhere all the time. So I'm going to make that for myself, even though it's artificial. And then I'm going to pin my identity to this thing because actually I'm getting a lot of meaning out of this and it feels really good. And my body likes it. And I don't know why, especially my body, especially feels good. Like right in the beginning. Cause like we're flush, like, you know, you're getting a lot of stuff out and I'm, I'm just super interested in that. And I also have this really strong belief that we will never restrict our way to sustainability. We won't get there through depriving. And I don't, I don't think the abundance, the excess abundance is the answer either. But I'm like, we have to find a, a way to have sustainability where the narrative and the story about sustainability is not less, less, let's be monastic, let's deprive. It can't be about austerity. And I'm kind of, I, my major in, in college was anthropology. I come to everything with this anthropological lens. We're learning, were you, did you study anthropology? That's what I did. Physical anthropology and biology. <gasps> All my favorite people did. <laughs> Stop. I don't talk about it very often. Oh, my favorite people. I don't talk about it very often. Oh my God. Okay. So like, it's a total, you know, it's It's like changing my whole life, learning all this stuff. Like, and so, you know, ancient human bodies were not unhealthy. We have this thing that like the Neanderthals were starving all the time. Like they weren't, they weren't. And like the craziest thing, they had like amazing teeth, like the best teeth ever. And And rest. Total abundance. They might have had like a rough, they rested. Yep. February might have been a little rough in the northern, you know. <laughs> they were uncomfortable. Were hard times. There, like, there was discomfort. Yes, they had discomfort. Yes. They had stress. My favorite thing I learned in anthropology. So you know how there was that myth forever that like early modern humans didn't live. Their average death was like age 35. So it'd be like, they only lived to 35. Dude, they had it, kids when they were 12, it. all this stuff. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the human skeleton like stops being differentiable like from an infant and a teenager so like the difference in the skeleton of like a 27 year old versus a 45 year old just isn't that much and so we had all these freaking skeletons and all these bodies and we could say like these are the young ones these are the old ones and these ones are 35 plus and all these freaking museums wrote 35 plus as, as, as it makes perfect sense on these exhibits. And that got twisted into, they died when they Which were Which gets compounded. Can I add to this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, this yes. gets compounded so much. <laughs> when we then look at, you know, prior to the industrial revolution, the average age of humans through records, whether, you know, depends on how far back you go, tends to be relatively low because so many people died as babies. And so when you have, when you have yes. a family of four and or let's say a family of six, actually, and four people live into their sure, 60s yeah. or 80s and two people die before age five. Your average age at mortality is going to drop precipitously. <laughs> yes. And we had a lot of bad, like we had poor health in a lot of different periods. Like now I have a lot of feelings about agriculture and all the, the things that it has brought in our lives, but it, it was the first time, like our diets changed tremendously going from a hunter gatherer to a, to a, you know, a sedentary, not a sedentary, but essentially a fixed position, harvesting fewer 
crops and like the diversity that we used to eat. We used to have hundreds of species in a year, and then we transitioned. And to now eating, we like, have the illusion things. of diversity. And even right? today, a like, Brussels sprout, kale, broccoli, yeah, we go, rapini—they're oh, all the same. I, yeah, there is no the diversity same. there. It's one plant. It's one yeah. plant. None. All our fruits, our fruits are like cantaloupe and this. They're all like the same freaking species. And so we eat like seven things in a year. Yes. But this is where I'm like additive, additive approach to diet. I do think that sometimes we miss, and I just sat down with Dr. Bill Schindler, who's a experimental archaeologist and anthropologist who wrote this book called Eat Like a Human and is awesome. But one of the things that he really brought to my attention is we also created a lot of technologies for extracting more nutrients out of our food post agriculture. This is when we see this is when we see the advent of fermented vegetables a lot. We see the advent of things like sauerkraut and preservation techniques that can actually increase the benefits of food. We also see things like cheese making come online. And, you know, I mean, it's hard to identify that first place, right? Because a lot of people feel that the first cheese was made, somebody cut into a calf stomach and realized that in that fourth chamber, that essentially what that calf is doing is making cheese. And that prompted them to try to recreate that process. And so there are some technologies that come online after agriculture, some sprouting and fermenting and different preservation techniques that do increase bioavailability. And so I love to look at like, because agriculture has wrought a lot of a lot of problems, many of them health related. But I think that it is also And so I'm like, do you go <laughs> I love the theory, and I'm not sure if this is true. It's, I think it's just a theory, but like when you are for the first time have excess as a culture, because you're farming and you now have a crop that you can store in a place for the first time, you now have to protect it. And like that sort of shift culturally being that being sort of the advent of like and military ownership, property, I think is very marriage, interesting. ownership, yes. marriage, property, yep. Yep. gender, this relationships changing. are. Yep. Because now we have to pass lands and property through a lineage. How are we going to do that if we don't have a container marriage for that to pass through? Yes, I think some of these things came part and parcel with a different view of the, with honestly, actually, with the story that we started telling ourselves. Because all of the sudden, mm-hmm. mm, <laughs> because all of the sudden, here we are in one place. And let's imagine that maybe the story up until that point wasn't, it wasn't tied to place. It was tied to how we integrated it into the environment, whatever that environment was. But right. now... And the art changed. Say more. So like pre-agriculture, the art was primarily celebrating women, fertility, and wild animals. Wow. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I don't know if I want to finish that sentence, but yeah. The art changed. (laughs) The art changed. The art changed. Wow. Right? Like, I remember seeing, like, Venus of Villendorf, like, the first, it's like, you know, Art History 101 and being like, and and the, like, narrative around this piece of art is like, we don't know why they would have worshipped such a large woman. We cannot imagine why. It is kind of strange, and it's a mystery. And, like, (laughs) you know, 
Okay. So let's tie back into femininity because I think, because this has been a big piece and I think it's a big piece of exploring intuition, exploring, maybe crafting a new story on some different, a a different lens. It looking through a more feminine lens creates a different story and how this has played a role in touch points and in your reticence around marriage. Yeah. And I feel like I'm just starting to explore femininity because I, in some ways it was, it's the lens that I couldn't see. And I'm now seeing more, I've always been very interested in how, or I I subconsciously always knew how to use feminine femininity to, I knew that it made me, I was in danger, but I also knew I could use it to get what I wanted to keep myself safe and get myself protection. And I see in a lot of my behavior growing up, this, this sort of using of femininity to feel safe. I really, I want a protector. And I still, I love that about Justin is like this thing where <laughs> we always jo- we joke. Cause like us coming together, like he pretty much like now he doesn't get in fights anymore. Like he's a, no- <laughs> he's a nice man. Like <laughs> this doesn't happen. Like this <laughs> since we got married like there's not but I have this I like feeling like I'm married to somebody that could keep me safe and does keep me safe and I've had a hard time I've really wrestled with femininity because I'm like I want this piece but not this piece you know the way that femininity I see it in the past I don't like it doesn't feel good for me I don't want to lean into the domestic in that way that doesn't feel right to me I'm not sure I want to be a mother and some, I feel like I have leaned into some masculine traits, but then also at the same time, when I, when I start to really lean into the masculine side of myself, it does throw me out of balance in other ways where I'm like, Oh, that doesn't feel good either being all the way over there. So I don't know that I have a really like thoughtful thoughts on that. I think we're in this cool moment right now where we're just in this broadening, like, let's just broaden. And I, I very much am always like psyched to hear stories and, and lore and also like his historical, you know, when they find, they find like early modern human females buried with weapons, you know, and that stuff that like gives me chills. Like we never had that story growing up and yeah, that stuff. I have a book I'm for you <laughs> that I think you're going to love. Um, it's called the heroine's journey by Maureen Murdoch. And this was a really big launching point for me to explore my relationship with the feminine, which is something that I had really pushed away my entire life that I associated the feminine with instability, uh, and with total chaos. And it really drove me to seek and to build and to nourish the more masculine side of me and to be in the company of more masculine beings. And I think in some ways, it didn't, not what led me into butchery, but it was definitely a part of that journey. And Maureen's book unpacks the typical hero's journey, the typical Ulysses, but in the aspect of the feminine yes. and how we move out of childhood, oftentimes being more attached to the masculine, looking to the masculine, and so therefore wanting to associate more and then reaching this this inflection point where we want to, it hasn't served us, and we realize that it's not serving us and we want to connect to something different. I I am so excited to read it. I'm now seeing all the ways that 
I rejected femininity as a kid because I thought it was weakness. You know, all this whole, like, I'm a tomboy thing is really just same, same old patriarchy bullshit. And I am now, like, I'm in this place where I almost, and I noticed, so, okay, I was probably 27, 28, and I noticed that every single book I read was written by a man. Every single song I listened to was sung by a man. Every article I read, like, and it wasn't just that that's what was around me. I was seeking it out. I would go to a bookstore, ignore titles by women. I don't know what I thought these books were about. I was like, I don't know, it's probably soft, and I'm tough. Like, I, I got this, like, whole narrative about it, and I made this little effort, like, let me just try it. Let me just see what happens, like, if I start reading, you know, but more books by women. If I start listening to songs by women, like, let me just like play with this. And then I have never gone back. It's been like 10 years. No, it hasn't. It's been less, but it's, I, I'm like, I'm never going back. Like I'm in this place now where I'm just like, I want the wisdom of women and I'm so hungry for it. I'm like, teach me. Like what am I yeah. missing? And all the company these years? of women. And I want to, yeah. Which oh I, oh my god, the company of women. My I'm like so life. upset, and that's why I was like had no female spaces. friends. No I was female for friends. I had no idea whatsoever. I'm just no. And I, I always had like one. You know, I had like a small, small group, and I, and I was a twin. I never had a sister. And people ask me all the time, like, I want to do, like, oh, please do couples retreats. Pl- please do co-ed retreats. And I'm like. I think this one's for the girls. Like, I think I just want to do women's spaces. That's what is lighting me up right now. And I feel like other women are feeling this call to it. Because I think we've been deprived of the role of a group of women in culture and the power of that. You know, when we're talking about pre-agriculture, I think there was more space where we were all together and, and probably processing food, right? Probably winnowing and separating rice or whatever that was. And I think that that space would have been more traditionally occupied by women and in a group. And we're, we're missing that. Like I, there often, I don't remember the last time I was in a group of women. And so there is a craving for that. Oh my gosh. I literally, I literally don't remember. (laughs) Oh, Kate, I want to get you to a retreat. You would, you would love it. And I'm like, was so scared to do one. It's like, I had this calling to do it, but I was like, this isn't going to work. Like, I'm going to want to leave halfway through. It's going to be too much mm-hmm. women for yeah, me. I like that. I had this whole thing and I, I think a lot of women too come to women. it. Like they have that, they, too many yeah, women. they have the, too many, too many women. I can't do it. I can't do it. And it's like, that is just like, not what happens. It's, it's, we can get tired by the FaceTime and the social, but it's like, we actually want more women. Like we don't want to go home. People will cry on the bus. And these are people that are like, didn't think they would get. And I always tell people, cause they get scared to come alone. And I'm like, the people that come alone, get the most out of it because you, you've are you don't have your like safety person to go to. You have to meet people and like connect and you're going to get out of this the, to the degree of discomfort you feel like on your first night, mm-hmm. <laughs> like those things mm-hmm. are related. And like, we're sort of building something. We don't have a template. I didn't go to events like this. So we're tweaking them all the time. You know, like I'm building more rest in. So like the first couple events, I kept everybody so busy. And my whole thing was like, everyone's not going to get their money's worth. You know, they're not exhausted. <laughs> it has to be hard. <laughs> has to be hard. Has to be hard. Has to be hard. And then last time I was like, let's make Sunday a quiet. And now I'm like, I think I need to delete some workshops to give people the value that they're looking for. Like I want the stuff we do to be really like high value, high ROI emotionally and physically. And then subtraction is addition time. (laughs) Boom. 
Yes. Like let's do less. Let's take less excursions. And this is as a way, like let's deepen because what ends out happening is like, it's all these stolen, like we're rushing to the next thing and someone's having this amazing conversation with a friend and they're like ripping away from it to go learn a new skill. And it's like, actually, I think this is what we came came to connect. And I think we can connect. That's always what's missing. And I, I think we connect a lot in rest, right? Like we connect back to ourselves. We connect with other people. We connect with our husbands. We connect with, with our environment, with the land that we're on. Like rest is a space for connection. And I recently saw something about some of the things that aren't resting. Scrolling on your phone is not resting. Hmm. (laughs) Watching Netflix isn't resting, which it's a bummer, but I'll take it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Like, but yeah, <laughs> but I think Damn that it. rest is really about connecting and processing and integrating. And this is like, sometimes I tell myself, all right, yep. I need to dissociate yep. for like two hours. I'm going to scroll. Yep. I actually, I'm hungry for it. Yep. I want to leave my body for a minute. And then sometimes then I have to like, <sighs> you know, it goes back to, and this takes us back to the beginning of like, what do we need to do in a day to feel our best and to be humans and like, do be happy on this earth. And like, I really should be taking a walk every single day. I feel so freaking good. I get my best ideas. I always feel amazing. I don't want to make a chore out of it, but yeah, that's like, I come back to that is actually rest. See, when I frame it as exercise, I don't want to do it, but rest. And it's, it's not, I took a walk before I took a walk before (laughs) we hopped on. That was one of the most important things for me to work into my day. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And then I think this leads me a little bit to the idea of like building our, building a feminine business too. Like, of course our, our partners are, they are involved for sure. So this is a, you know, whatever, but I'm in charge of a lot of the day-to-day stuff. And I'm always telling myself that like my leadership or my structure isn't right because it doesn't look like other stuff I've seen. It certainly doesn't look like how other ranches, like we're doing this, like we're bringing this employee on in April and we're giving him the schedule and we're like, and then you take Sundays off. And he's like, I don't need days off. Like I expect to work seven days. And I'm like, we have to give you days off. You have to accept days off. Like we are trying to change the paradigm. And I know that now like he's having the experience of like, I'm not a legit ranch hand if I'm not suffering, you know? Like, I'm like, I don't want to push you. I don't want to make you hate your life. Like, this is what happens. It's fun in the beginning. And you feel like you get a medal, like for working the hardest and being so tough. And like, then you resent it and it pushes you out of this life. And like, we have to, let's try to build something different from the beginning. And I don't want to, in the beginning, let's not overwork you at the start and then fix this problem in a year, you know? So trying to do that. But then I'm like, oh my gosh, what do we do? He gets a day off. That's pretty humane. Uh Oh, we better cover that day. Now we have to make a new structure. Like, should the rest of us take a day off? Like, well, hang on a second. Should we all have one? Like, what do we do now? Yes. How do we build businesses that are more feminine in structure at, you know, and this is unheard of in the restaurant industry at Western Daughters. Everybody gets two days off in a row, in a row. Mm. And that is super oh, important. Wow. Super important to us. You need them off in a row. It's very, it changes the way that your week feels. It changes the way that your interactions at home feel. It changes the way that you feel about yourself. And if we don't change the paradigm, no one's coming for us, right? Like, no, no one's coming coming to change it it for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Yep. If not us, then who? Like, seriously, we are the ones now. I, I keep looking around for like yeah. another figure. There's no who who can tell me what to do. <laughs> There's no 
knight in shining armor, unless that's us, unless mm-hmm. we're that knight, right? Unless you look down and you're like, oh shit, yeah. I'm wearing armor yeah. and it's shiny. Must be me. <laughs> <laughs> it's gotta be me. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. And I think we have been so robbed in like modern life of the wisdom of our elders. And it's tough now because a lot of that wisdom exists, but also a lot of our elders are like not well spiritually. And so they can't lead us. And it's really sucks. It's really unmooring to try to, to look at some people decades ahead of us in age, in some ways, learning toddler lessons. And like, you've probably seen that, like, like when you have to gentle parent, like your parents, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm doing that. I'm just saying like, I know this pattern and this thing where you're like yelling, isn't a good way to express your feeling. Like you're allowed to be mad, but you can't use that word with me. Like this kind of stuff, this is toddler stuff. I didn't learn it as a toddler. I'm already 30 years behind. They're learning it now at 70. It's like, oh my gosh. And there's certainly so many wise people out there and I'm so lucky to have them in my life, but it's like kind of hard to find mentors. mentors. And yeah, so it kind of is us. us. And I think that doesn't, we are (sighs) are the ones. We're the knights in shining armor. (laughs) And it doesn't preclude us from taking wisdom where we can and understanding how to take, yeah, how to take advice from our elders with a grain of salt and to pick the gems and the nuggets out of it as we will. And to also see the shifts that we are deciding to make to break what I consider intergenerational trauma and to really, to really change that changes all the generations after. But I think it's also changing some of our older generations. I was talking to our Airbnb host in Denver and he was in his seventies and he was talking about doing the work of changing the way that his childhood shaped his personal narrative. And I have had a couple of interactions with our, our elderly neighbors up here that have kind of blown my mind. And so I think that it's important to remember too, that when we enact some of these changes, there are ripple effects going all these different directions. And this takes me back to when you were talking about how to see your story, to change it, and to let yourself be changed and to adjust that story. There's kind of this collapsing of timelines, right? There's the story that we've carried with us in the past. There's our ability to step out of it and to look at who we are in the present that is shaping that future story. But there is also the future story that we tell ourselves about these, these Kate's and Carolyn's wearing earrings that is changing, that is changing (laughs) that present story. And so there is sort of this Whoa. collapsing of timelines that happen happens anytime that story begins to shift and change. Whoa, okay. Whoa, whoa. And there's ways where like, I'm just dipping my toe into the intergenerational ancestor stuff. And I have this real, I've always felt this connection to my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who I've never, she passed away before I was born. And my mom always, so she had 11 kids. She was this Catholic, you know, and, and my mom always says she had 11 kids because she would have 
she wanted to like run a business. Like she was someone who was just like highly capable and the only path she couldn't go to college, the only path. And she was an amazing mom. And it's not, not to say that she wasn't like so fulfilled and so into her choices. Cause she was, and she was like the most, by all accounts, the most vibrant mother, but in, and she was horsey and she wanted to go West and she only got to a few times. And it, there's this kind of interesting thing where like, I have read a few of her letters and I have a picture of her on horseback in my living room where it's like, I feel like I'm living this is your maternals a little bit too. Maternal and there's of my life. My, yes. And maternal grandmother. And I feel like in ways I'm living my mom's dreams. Like we have conversations about like, like I've chosen a partner who is me nice too. to me, which is radically different like than my radical mother. Like this shit where it's radically different. And, sh- and hearing like when I tell stories about like this, I'll just be like the thoughtfulness with which how Justin treats me and the way that he loves me so effortlessly and thoughtfully. She's just like, wow. Like, so so, I feel it in her heart and goes to my heart. Like, and in so many ways she helped me get here, you know, like this is all a line and we're all doing better, a little better. And my, if I have kids and I don't know if I will, or maybe have some, a child that will be in my life one day that I can mentor, like will do better than me. It's like this amazing thing. Do you feel, what do you feel like in regards to like, connection to ancestors or connection. I think it's immutable. I think that as you were talking, I'm always reminded of this idea that we were once eggs in our grandmother's womb, right? Like we were eggs inside of Mm -hmm. our mother, inside Mm -hmm. of our grandmother. And I think that, I think that the way that our lineages flow is we're constantly following the paths that feel familiar or veering away from the paths that feel familiar. Right. (laughs) Okay. And so, (laughs) and so I think as children, when we look down the line, you see people who followed and you see people who ran the other direction, but within that, we're always going to be carrying some of that patterning. And I think the sooner we can become aware of it and see the way that it has flowed, both the good and the bad. And I, I think so often we talk about intergenerational trauma without talking about intergenerational joy and all of the good too, that has flowed down the line. And and there's going to be both. And looking that that and embracing it, and I think you know when you look at like the work of Gabor Mate, I think is a really interesting, and the idea that there is no genetic component to something like say alcoholism. There is only learned behavior through generations. And isn't it true they think right now that like epigenetics yes. turns yes. stuff on and off? So like a, a nourished, joyful life is going, going to change bring us out at a genetic us. level. And most of it is not fixed. Yes. Right. Yes. Like most of our genetic material is not fixed. There's only, I think it's about 5% of our genetic material that is truly fixed in place. And so that gives us a massive amount of autonomy and agency over the way that we write this story. And I'm going to take it back there at a genetic level. Yes. And here's where I go with this because Sometimes when I talk about this stuff, people want to quibble with the details. Well, it may, we don't know the details, the data. Okay. 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 To me, I don't care if it's true or not. I only care about its effect on my life. And if I believe that my genetic material is moldable and I am not fixed to patterns that are from my genetic past, I am free. 
and I can change my life. And so I don't care what's true. I'm sure happy every time a new article comes out. And like, we also know it. that the placebo effect but, usually is almost as effective. Yeah. It's usually within a two to 3% margin of <laughs> yes. most drugs on the market, especially psychiatric medication. And so the placebo of that belief oh is part of our amazing ability as humans. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'll take I'll take the beef liver pills and I'll tell myself I feel so good. I do yeah. feel so good. I do feel so good. Yeah. I don't care I don't what's care causing it. In something. I don't need the hard facts. Yeah. It just like it just needs to change. Yeah. And I think that we can't look too closely, right? Like we can't look these gift horses of change in the mouth. Can't look mm-hmm. too closely whether it's it's perfectly true yeah. and scientifically sound. It just needs to happen. However, it's going to happen. This ties me back a little bit to that conversation about the food we eat and like not wanting to feel, I always say like guilt has no place as a side, (laughs) like on the dinner table, you should never have a side of guilt. I should have said that a little better, but this thing where like, you know, we're supposed to, and I hate this whole clean versus dirty food thing. I hate, 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 like a big one for me. Like I don't even care if I'm going to stuff my face with Cheetos. I'm going to be like the narrative around that in my mind is like, I want Cheetos. I'm craving Cheetos. I'm giving myself Cheetos and they taste damn good. And when I'm full of them and when I'm sick of them, I'm going to stop eating them. And then I'm not going to think about it anymore. And that's like my practice where I believe my nightly five Hershey kisses are part of a balanced (laughs) diet. Like I, (laughs) I want my farm raised egg yolks and I want to have my farm raised beef and I'm going to be part of the CSA in the summer when it's open. And then I'm not going to be in the winter and I'm going to eat worse quote unquote worse. And I just believe that like the way that we feel about the food that we're eating has like nutritional effects on us. And so I just try to be so careful. And I had this discussion with a family member who came to visit me and was so sweet and like cooking all this different food. And then it was like, these snacks are clean and these ones are less clean. Like there was a rating system to the snacks. And I was like, I can't do this. Like I, and also of course the quote unquote cleanest snacks were the least delicious. You know, it's like this like fucking dry cookie that like has not one ounce of sugar or sweetener <laughs> in it. Like my chicken, this is chicken food. And I'm like, <laughs> that's not a snack. Like I want all... <laughs> I believe yes. that like my food, I want to, I want to enjoy I want yes. eating to be delicious, like for frick's sake, you know? And so like for the retreats, I just try not to have this atmosphere of food purity while also like we are clearly celebrating responsibly well-sourced proteins and like foods and stuff. So that is like a huge part of the retreat and like the mission. So yes, like we're serving our beef and lamb. We want to get the chicken from the plate, you know, with all these local places. But at the same time, I am, I'm never trying to villainize like other types of food. I like the snacks to be abundant and varied in their like quote unquote cleanliness. And and as you know, there's so much greenwashing anyway, that these bougie expensive snacks yes. don't mean anything. Yes. So it's like, if I'm going to have like a snack like that, then give me the Doritos at least. Don't lie to me. That's the thing. <laughs> it's like, don't give me this false sense that I'm doing something pure. And then it's like the same ingredient. Like don't do, you know, so <laughs> yes. Yes. And I also believe like if I'm hungry, it's more important that I feed myself than what I feed myself. Like if I'm starving and I had a nutritionist one time pull my blood and and I don't know if it's my type of metabolism or whatever, but she's like, you're the type of body where like you got to eat. And if you have to have a donut for breakfast, have a donut for breakfast because you will start taking stuff out of your body very quickly that you need. I just always take, it's like, I don't, you know, 
yeah. And so I think it's like, I always feel like I'm walking a line as like a very, very advocate regenerative rancher who's like, we need to have a better food system while also I'm not buying that much organic groceries whatsoever. It's like, I know too much. Like I, I don't follow the food labels and I, I'm like, this is where, where I'm going to splurge. And here's where I'm not, I'm going to buy the, I'm buying regular dairy milk and cream. Like, and I'm jealous of your, I'm jealous of your goats and your home, your home dairy. (laughs) This is different though, because what Josh and I do right now is homesteading and not farming. Mm -hmm. Like we Mm -hmm. do not run this farm at scale. We would like to, but we are not right now because we are focused on other businesses. And so that allows me to have the sort of leisure rest time of milking goats and we don't milk them year round. And usually I wouldn't milk them this early, but one of them snuck in with the billy goat and then snuck out. (laughs) So I never knew. I never knew. I didn't know um, (laughs) that she had gotten pregnant. It is is like the sneakiest goat pregnancy ever. (laughs) Um, And I put them in with the billy goat in December. Oh my gosh. Whoa. And so we were a little bit surprised when that happened because she snuck in and snuck out. Um, I thought she looked really fat, but we lie to ourselves sometimes as like sure. willful ignorance yeah. as, yeah. as farmers where you just refuse to see what is so obviously right in front of you. Um, yes. Yes. but part of that, part of that ability, and we don't grow a lot of vegetables, right? Because we cannot be all things. We cannot do all things. And I think that this is, this is a part of the food system too, is, everyone is going to have something that they are good at and good at creating. And we also have to, so we have to have balance in that regard and we have to have balance in what we eat and making sense of it. So I'm so passionate about, I think we can easily get overwhelmed about our food and we can go like, well, if I can't be perfect, like, I don't even want to do it. You know, if I can't get everything from the farmer, like blah, 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 blah. It's like, I just tell people do one thing, pick one thing and then just source it from a place that you feel great about, whether it's direct from a farmer or you just get like the carry gold or like whatever. It's a business that you research all the way through and you feel great about it. And for us, like it was eggs was the first thing. And then, then we pretty much replaced our meat, not all of it, but a lot of it. And I I feel really good about having like 25% of my diet, maybe up to 50% at a really in the summer, like sourced from places I'm psyched about. And I'm like, I'm too, I have a lot going on. This could be my full-time job, like sourcing food and cooking it well. Taking care of your body. Full-time job. I had to do that for a while. I got really sick and it was my full-time job. Right. Yes. And it's all, yeah. it honestly, when you're sick, it's actually probably two full-time jobs. <laughs> like it's, yes, it's probably two that people that can be <laughs> <laughs> built that way. But yeah. I got out of it. And so food can be a tool too in that way. Yes. And I, I want to leave space for that because I think there were times when my diet had to be very tight and it doesn't mm-hmm. anymore, but my body needed that in order to heal. And I had to be a little bit more restrictive than I am now. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad you said that. I'm really glad you said that. So important. I, and I think our bodies will tell us that. And that's where it goes back to like, listen, you know, listening. listen to ourselves. Yeah. Like I'm probably, yeah. I'm like a little bit dairy intolerant, just a little like, and I don't listen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But you might not need to. And I right. I was dairy intolerant and have wow. been able to fix that. Wow. That's a whole other conversation. That's amazing. <laughs> it yeah. took a long time. It took yeah. a long time. And it, this has only been in the last six months that I've been experimenting with this and come back and been like, oh, I, I think this is okay. 
And I think that's a really interesting thing too, about just not getting too fixed for so many reasons, like in our identities, because our diet can be this huge part of our identity. And I think a lot of times any, any manner of restrictive diet, whether it's carnivore, keto, whole 30, veganism, like we get really attached. I think it feels so good to have a tribe that sometimes we don't even care what it is. We're just like, I'll, like, I always joke that like, I could be recruited into a cult in 24 hours, like, because I get so swept up in community. It just feels so good because we're missing that group of women because we're missing that group of people and we're isolated. And so it's really easy to get swept up in connection. I mean, I, I feel that too. Yeah. It's incredible. It's very potent. And I just keep going back to like trying to do the baby step towards the next right thing for our bodies, for ourselves, for the planet. This is going to like, we are going to solve whatever these issues are in a bajillion baby steps. It's not, and I, I get so annoyed by the sort of, I think they're like false flags of like the big sustainability topics. Like for a while it was plastic straws. I'm like... <laughs> Every minute fix the world. Nope. This is, and and it's actually to me detrimental because it, it dominates the conversation and it's this unnuanced thing. And I think red meat is in this huge thing right now too, where it's like, this has become this like really handy scapegoat for everybody where we're going to focus on this thing and we're going to like rally against it and think we're solving something when like the, the quickest Google, the quickest Google will illuminate like the actual state of emissions in the world and the U S and everywhere is like, <laughs> like this goes back. It's fossil fuels beginning, middle and end 80 million cows, 220 million cars. Yep. Ooh. Yep. Ooh. And like, ev- and guess who wins when we fight about cow burps, British petroleum. <laughs> yeah. Because like, I think that another piece of this, another piece of the straws, another piece of the red meat is putting the onus on the individual. The onus mm-hmm. isn't in the, on the individual. Mm-hmm. And we Did have you to know recognize that climate <laughs> footprint. The concept of an individual climate footprint came from fossil fuel company marketing in yep. like the 20 tons. Yep. Like this is your water footprint, all this stuff is manufactured. So was the term vegan leather came out of, well, that came out of like high-end fashion houses wanting to rebrand their stuff as expensive while paying less for it and selling it for more for their customers while making them feel ethical. Yeah. Are you going to unpack all of these things and more on Choose Wisely? (laughs) Yes. I'm in, I'm a bit manic about this stuff right now because I'm in this like honeymoon stage with this podcast, which is not, well, it's it's coming out March 7th. So it's when we're recording, it's almost out. It'll be out. And I'm seeding a bunch of episodes because we're getting going to do lambing season and, and calving and my life's going to get crazy. So I'm in this huge frenzy right now of research and recording. And I know you know what this feels like when you're like kicking oh, yeah. something off. And so I just did recorded two episodes on like leather versus pleather. And I'm just letting my passion and enthusiasm like guide. And I'm, I'm really interested in, in whatever the mainstream thing is, whatever people already think is true. We will not be talking about it. Like I, I'm interested in what we're missing. So for example, I'm, I want to do an episode on what we miss and like the limits of regenerative agriculture as a movement right now. And that doesn't mean that I'm not bought into it and like so passionate about it. And I think we can be doing a lot better, but it's like, I think that the regenerative agriculture movement contains a lot of elitism, a lot of classism, a lot of virtuism where we get to say like, I'm doing this thing and I don't have to look critically at anything else I'm doing. (sighs) Nothing is a panacea. Yes. Yes. And I think 
as we are grasping at straws for solutions, LOL, that was fun. (laughs) Um, uh, As we are grasping at straws for solutions, I think things start to look like a panacea. They look like a miracle cure. And I think that we also sell a lot of quote unquote miracle cures in culture, right? Like this supplement, this diet, this thing is going to cure all your illnesses. It's going to help you stay younger. It's going to help you live forever. It's going to help the planet get better. There are no miracle cures. And so anything that is being marketed as one deserves a better look, even if it's something that has a lot of good ideas in it, like regenerative agriculture. I'm so glad you phrased it so perfectly. And I always say like the solutions will not be sexy. So if it feels like something you can do a rally over, (laughs) it's, it's a fake solution. So for example, like I, when you just follow the numbers, like a ton of, we, we could like practically get ourselves out of like a, the real pickle just by doing like better waste management. And it's not sexy. It is nope. like, we are just simply talking about plumbing people like, <laughs> like wow. urban planning, you know, like this, yeah. stuff, how, what we do with our water and it's complicated and there's zoning and there's the most boring articles in the world that you have to read to understand this stuff. And that is, that's the stuff that I'm so excited to talk about. I'm trying to make some stuff that it's like, I have to make this stuff interesting to do a podcast about it, to get people to listen, to get people to give a shit. <laughs> Ooh, but a but lot of the solutions are the not most sexy. interesting things are the most out of left field. Like if you, if to me, a podcast about how waste management is going to make a solid dent in, in changing something. I'm like, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't (laughs) see that coming. (laughs) I like a surprise, right? Like I I like a curveball. It's like, Ooh, waste management. Okay. Okay. Let's go. And I feel like a lot of people are ready. Like I just have felt energy around these topics And every time I talk about them on Instagram, I've been frustrated by like that, that media, that format is not long enough. No, I can never get the nuance in. And I think, I think maybe five years ago, a podcast in a lot of ways, defending beef without defending beef directly would not land in the same way. I think people are a little more primed for this conversation now. I would like to think so. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's like, we've been out here. I would here. like to think so. As I, as I put, pour a year of my time, effort, and love into this, into this podcast, mostly You've been in the coal mines. You've been in, in the content coal mines, chipping away at this. Like, we've been trying. Yeah. We're trying. Yeah, and I'm super excited to talk about, I mean, it's, it's going to talk a lot about meat, a lot about dairy, because that's where I'm familiar. But um, I do, I'm going to talk about vegetables. I want to talk about migrant labor. I want to talk about the industrialization of our, of our vegetables. I mean, people think like lettuce is handpicked by like old McDonald with a wicker basket. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you know, that, it's, I have, it's, I literally <laughs> have on here. We underestimate the industrializations of fruit and vegetables on yeah. my notes for you because yes. it was so on the nose. <laughs> and it's so ironic because the production of beef is the most old McDonald had a farm of any industry still to this day that exists aside from like a you pick veggie CSA. Yeah. Like yeah. it's just ranchers do even like dairies are not this way anymore. Like nothing else is. 
And anything that is handpicked relies on migrant labor, which relies on a real, an ethical challenge. I mean, some of these farms are paying their the labor as well and housing them well, and some of them are not. Yeah. And like, then we're wasting a third of the freaking rhubarbs that were handpicked by a man on his knees. And then we think we're doing something more ethical by buying that. And it's like, I'm, I'm a vegetarian. I'm not eating meat for the environment. And like, that's the stuff where I turn into a firecracker and explode. Like, <laughs> and I'm so excited to talk about this stuff. Remove humans from the idea of the environment. And that is all the messaging does is it separates, yes. right? Like you are separate from the environment. You are different from the environment. You are doing things to the environment. Then we are innately evil too. We are bad. Yes. Humans yes. are bad. We are bad. We are bad. We're very naughty. And yep. <laughs> Once you do that, then that man who's on his knees picking vegetables is not part of our food environment when he, the people, are the most important part of Wow, I love that you said that. Yep. Yep. This thing too of like, I think this goes back maybe a little bit to the idea of like original sin. And I don't think we can get anywhere thinking that we're sinners, thinking that we are bad. I think I'll be critical about humans and our behavior all day long. But I don't think fundamentally humans are bad. And also, even if they are, I don't care to know that I'm going to keep living my life like they're not because it brings good things into my life. Yeah. And we got ourselves into this pickle and we got ourselves into it in like the last hundred years. I mean, certainly there was things before that, but like we can do this. Like every time there's a new article that's like, well, it's too late, folks. I'm like, shut up. Oh, shut up. There's 50 shut harvest up. lots. I'm just like, yes, no, no, 50, no, 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 no. There's always 50 harvest there's lots. There's always I'm 50. Like, yeah. No, I'm no, like, you, no, no. Come pitch in then. Like, all right, guy who wrote the article, get out here. Like, <laughs> and, and as I, I mean, as I say this, I said in the middle of this podcast that I do think that it's critical that some change happened now. Yes. And so there's a little bit of a yes. And, and I want, I want to acknowledge that I just participated in a little bit of that. You know, I want to have the the self-reflection to do that Mm -hmm. because I do think it is important. And it's not that I think that we're going to melt off the face of the earth if we don't do this, but I think that things are going to change in a way that will become increasingly more difficult to walk back and in a way that will really vastly change what it is to be human on this earth. And so it there is an urgency. And I feel like being people who are part of the solution and we have boots on the ground, it's like that's when I get I get resentful when other people are telling me how it's too late and everything's horrible in the world. I'm like, well, I I'm just here to try. I'm not saying I'm going to make a meaningful dent, but like I know that I'm raising ethical lamb out here. You know, like I know I'm very confident in what we're doing. I know that this is not an emissions issue, what's going on out here. And I think being part of the solution, at least in my own mind and the story that I tell myself, has assuaged so much climate anxiety because I'm like, whatever, I'll go down doing my best. Like, yeah. And yes. And I get so frustrated. I think the people that are so dissociated and, and separate from nature feel more anxiety about it because of that distance. And they feel like they have no control over what happens. And I'm like, guys, get a chicken. I don't know what, to, like, I, I have an idea, like start an herb garden. It will change your life. Like <laughs> it is tiny and it's radical. Become again, part of nature and part of the Come environment. Home. Come, Come home. home to the Come farm. Home. I cannot wait for choose wisely. I really can't. Oh, I you. am just so, I am so tickled and I just want every, I can't wait to dive in and to oh. hear these deep dives and to, to plumb how plumbing could be yeah. an engine of change. 
That was really funny today. Um, <laughs> we need that. And we need more explorations of nuance. And I love that that is part of your tagline, that it's using nuance and primary sources because we need more long format nuance in the world of TikTok and reels. We, I mean, that's, that's why I'm here because I have troubles containing myself in 90 seconds ever as we go on for three hours, right? Like this is, this is my home because we need more conversations and to bring people into that conversation. And thank you for like leading the way because it's like, you can't see yourself doing something until you see someone else doing it. And you imagine, you know, it really is like a paving of the way. And I'm so appreciative that you're having these nuanced, you're having nutrient dense conversations like every single week <laughs> oh, that are that. so rich. Like, I'm like, okay, I, I can do this. And thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm a fan. I can't believe I, I'm on. Like I've been a, such a fan since since Lacey Jean's episode. Like I've been so hooked ever since then. And oh my gosh, I, it's such a huge honor to talk to you. And I want to, we got to do more stuff together. We yeah. Will. I want to do more stuff together. I, yeah. before we wrap up, I want to wrap up however you want to wrap up. I think we've talked so much about magical thinking in the best possible mm-hmm. way. And I think mm-hmm. that's one space I thought about wrapping up mm-hmm. and we've talked so much about story. And I think that stories require some magical thinking. That's how we write a story. And there are a lot of stories for us to rewrite. And I think that starts with, with us as individuals, but yeah, man, I'm thinking so much about that. When we start pulling apart, like the threads of the stories of our lives, it's unbelievable. Like what new stories we can write. And I've even struggled with the power of it because so much of my life, my wildest dream was to come to Montana and be a rancher and like bonus points. If there's this like cute, charming boy named Justin there and all that has happened and it happened like so fast, you know, pretty much it didn't feel like it. It was like a 10 year dream. But once that, once I really made the move and things started to become in motion, it has happened so fast where I'm almost like have this intimidation of our own ability to radically change the stories in our own lives. And I'm in this process right now where I'm starting to renovate our house. And for years, like we've lived here for six years or five years. And that whole time I have been waiting for someone else to like lead the way on this renovation and take the first wall down. Like whether it's my husband or whether it's this like handyman that knocks on our door in my imagination is like, I need some work. Like you got any project? You know what I mean? Like, and I'll do it for cheap. Like I had this, someone (laughs) must be coming aside from me because I don't know anything about renovating a house. And then I got so sick of that story. It finally turned curdled like in my mind. Mm. And I, about a month ago, I pulled the first wall down and it literally came down with like the ease of like one hand gently. Like it's the cheapest paneling. It took, I I, like set the hammer down. I'm like, I don't need tools. Like (laughs) we're using my hands. (laughs) I'm like this and I'm real, I'm looking around me and I'm having this very literal, but also metaphorical realization that like everything is walls and two by fours and nails and screws. And that is the entire thing that we call home around us. And I'm like, 
we're now halfway in, like the demo is pretty much over. We're starting to rebuild. And I keep running against stuff where I'm like, I can't do the plumbing. That's too hard. And then I'm like, well, is it like, I don't like, I maybe should, maybe somebody should check on my work, but like, maybe it's not too hard. And every single step of the way I've pushed through, oh, I, now I can do tile. I guess tiles, not, I guess I can do it. It's not the most beautiful, but like it, I can do it. And it's, it's like, what else can I change? Like I could maybe build a house. Like, you know, you start having these things where you're like, oh my gosh. And then in order to build a house, I'm really going to change the story of myself. This whole thing where like, I'm bad at math. I can't do geometry. I have all these stories. And it's like, maybe, maybe we, we are like infinitely powerful. And it is a little, it's a little scary because when you truly feel that in your body, it's like, what are you waiting for? <laughs> oh, that hit me. <laughs> That was, that was the per- I don't even know what to say. I don't even have words. That's it. The perfect I think I'm going to write that above my computer. Like, what yeah. are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Yeah, that was perfect. There's, I mean, there's no better. There's no better space to leave people to imagine what they. What are they waiting? What are we all waiting for? What are we uh, waiting oh for? My God. Nobody's coming. What are we waiting for? Let's do this. Let's fucking do it. Let's fucking do yes. it. Oh my God. This is um, so much fun. I will have tons of links in the show notes. Do you want to talk about where people can find you? I, this sure. will all be, this will all be linked to everything. We're going to have choose wisely, little Creek and cowgirl camp. And okay, yeah. amazing. tell people. So on the internet, I'm at big sky, Caroline, and my business is called little Creek. Little Creek Lamb and Beef. We are at littlecreekmontana.com and we sell pasture-raised beef, dry-aged beef, and grass-fed lamb. And um, our podcast and my podcast, there's no R, no one else. My podcast is called Choose Wisely and it's coming out every week, season one in this spring. And then we're just going to go from there. So we're also on Instagram at Choose Wisely Podcast. Amazing. Oh and camp. Thank you so much. Camp. Yeah, I think it's like going to be full by then, but for if, future yeah, campers, for future, yeah, for anybody that wants to learn more about Shepherd Camp or Cowgirl Camp, you can find all the info on our website at littlecreekmontana.com. And you can just sign up for that email list. It'll like lead you there. And that's where you hear first. Cause a lot of times, like, we don't launch stuff, it never reaches the internet. Like, it just goes to email. So, um, yeah, and we'd love to have you in, out in Montana one day. Thank you so much. I, Thank you for sharing your joy. Thank you for sharing your tenacity and your grit and your really incredible ability to open up possibility. And I think that has been a huge gift for me in the conversations that we had prior to this podcast and this podcast, the doors of possibility that you have opened are indescribable and your ability to make things seem possible. Hey, I feel like I've learned more about myself talking to you like than I knew before this podcast. It's been so like enriching for me. And I just feel, I feel like such a, like a kindred connection with you. I'm so grateful for your time and like to be in your circle. And you have this, like, I feel like you're just, you're such a distiller. Like I have this image because I'm thinking of cowgirl camp. We're going to do this like uh, natural skincare thing where Tabitha from skin, skin fancy is going to like come out and she's going to distill like essential stuff out of this. And I feel like that's you, like you are this thing that like turns this amorphous, like diluted, like thing into this like rich, potent, nourishing, like beautiful thing that for all of us. And I'm, I'm really grateful because that's so many times in this conversation, 
you'd say, and I was like, oh, that's it. Like <laughs> there's the thing. So I'm just so grateful. Thank you. Thank it was you. magical. Um, I'm sure you'll be back. So you'll just be I'd back. Be. I've just already I'd love decided. to have you on Choose Wisely. We're going to do yeah. like, I'm going to start having guests after like 10 episodes. So I would love to have you. I would love to be there. <sighs> Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? This act of reciprocity helps others find Mind, Body, and Soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.